Blog Talk Radio. harmony. The earth supports our conscious effort for sustained humanity. Human beings, human love on a spiritual tip. So vast, so great. The African embrace. Live beyond. Love beyond. Your skin to where you belong. Black bitches, 
We're going to have an introduction on our political panelists and analysts, followed by what's going on in our world. And we have a special guest that will be joining us, Sister Camille Laundry. We have a discussion, a critical discussion on the issue of human rights and how that concept applied to us and how we get much grasp about understanding a better understanding of how we can use that as a tool to help liberate our people. After that discussion, we'll follow back with our remaining articles as relates to our theme tonight. Part two, blacks are not Americans. So that's it for this evening. So let's get started with our party like always. I'm Brother Africa and my radio rebels are ready to sound off today. And we can start off first and foremost so introducing Brother Haki, welcome, Brother Haki, to Africa on the Move. Uh, Brother Africa, thanks for having me. My name is <coughs> my name is Haki Kamasi Mishoki. And of course, Brother Africa, you know my thing is all about institution building. And one of the things when we talk about the importance of institution building, uh, it's important that we we point out that the situation confronting the U.S. government is becoming increasingly perilous. Uh, one of the things is that. When you look at look at the growing list of enemies that the U.S. has, it's very very clear in terms of sustaining you know uh, imperial state. It is becoming very very problematic for them. So when you have a situation you know where one nation, in a particular case America, where you have enemies in Russia, enemies in China, enemies in Nicaragua, Cuba, Venezuela, uh, Iran, you have all these enemies all over the world. It's indicative of the fact that uh, the U.S. system is finding itself in a very precarious state. And the notions that the, the strategies that you previously used historically in terms of force, in terms of brutality, uh, may not be effective in terms of maintaining uh, one's pursuit of, of imperialist objectives and goals. So clearly the American state is in turmoil. And, of course, the question for the, for the, the, the overwhelming number of people inside North America is, if this be any case, what is what is the situation? How does that situation uh, reflects on the masses of people living inside of America? Uh, clearly, it's going to have devastating impacts on the people inside of America, specifically, you know, oppressed nationalities. When it comes to the African community, uh, clearly we know that historically, when there's always trouble in terms of in terms of the system, then Africans always been a convenient standby in terms of scapegoating, and so we got we have to understand that. So we need institutions, we need those those organizations in the community to deal with these very intricate, very question, intricate questions in terms of our longevity in the society. Because without those, those institutions, without those organizations, it complicates our ability in terms of strategizing, in terms of moving forward under very hostile circumstances. You haven't said that, Brother Africa. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you, Brother Haki. I know in the seat you in the city you're gonna take the heat because you know how to find and stand behind it. So next we're going down, Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, we got to welcome you to Africa on the Moon. Welcome, my brother. Thank you for having me, Brother Africa, and revolutionary greetings to you, the fellow panelists and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC. Our objective is Pan-Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Thank you, Brother Anthony. And finally, Brother Anthony, of course, we're going to bring in 
the brother who know how to, who know how to pot and water, Brother Moses, welcome to Africa of the Move. Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice, especially the illustrious panelists. My name is Robert Andrew Moses. I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism during the government class back in my high school years, 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Tongue is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. And we don't reverse correct verdicts. I'm pro-choice, and I vote. Women hold up half the sky. I support the Equal Rights Amendment, E-R-A-S. And uh, the key ingredient is love. It's a love for the masses of the people. A revolutionary is guided by great feelings of love. If he makes a mistake, you can blame it on his, his on his mind and not on his heart. And I I just thank you once again, Brother Alfred, for allowing me to be on the show. Thank you, Brother Moses. And I heard, too, that women hose up half the sky. We happen to have one of them with us. That's Sister Eleanor. We're going to welcome her to Africa on the move. Welcome, Sister Eleanor. Good evening, Brother Africa, uh, fellow panelists, and our special guest. Good evening, Camilla. Um, thank you so much, Brother Africa, for having me on the show. Um, have a, I'm sure it's going to be very exciting and insightful. Thank you. Good evening, everyone. Good evening to you, Sister Eleanor, and to our listening audience, like always. We encourage you to call in and share your thoughts as we talk about issues that will have as, and is having an impact on our communities. You can call in at 323-679-0841. What we're going to do real quickly, we're going to take a revolutionary break, and when we come back, we're going to have a brief uh what's going on in our world and the community. We'll be right back, and we're going to play our theme song for tonight. Since our topic is part two blacks are not Americans, we're going to ask Peter Tosh Tosh, what he has to say about this. Listen to Brother Peter. This is his message. Don't you wait. 
where you come from As long as you're a black man You're an African No mind your complexion later, but right now, what we're going to do, we have a, a brief uh, discussion on what's going on in your world and the community, and we ask our panelists try to limit our presentation to no more than four to five minutes at most. We start off with you, Brother Hakeem. What's going on in your world and the community? Yeah, real briefly, in Florida, back in November, a police sergeant, Christopher Pul- Pul- Police, uh, was uh, was a charged with actually assaulting a fellow police officer. It was a situation in which they had a, cu- a, cus- a suspect in custody. He was handcuffed. Uh, Sergeant police, as opposed to de-escalating, he, he actually inflamed the situation by going go into the suspect and, and, and engaging in some verbal argument. Uh, a young uh, female officer, 23 years of age, realized that the situation was, was, was untenable. So she, what she did was she smart, intelligently she grabbed him and by the arm and tried to separate the sergeant, you know, from the suspect, in fear that the sergeant may punch the suspect who was handcuffed. Well, the, the sergeant in turn turned around, grabbed her by the neck, and slammed her into the car. Uh, clearly, uh, this young lady was, uh, this young officer was correct in terms of what she did, because not only was she understood the importance in terms of de-escalation, she also understood that potentially they by assaulting this handcuffed uh, suspect. Uh, these guys could be charged with criminal offenses. So she did what she thought was, was reasonable, and, and of course it was. 
Well, one of the things I think we have to ask ourselves in terms of this sergeant's action, why is it that, you know, uh, this particular sergeant felt uh, empowered to actually uh, uh, potentially assault a handcuffed suspect? Uh, why would he feel emboldened? And particularly given the fact that over two previous occasions, he was charged with excessive force. But, of course, like always, he was able to get out of those charges. So clearly this young lady did the correct thing, and uh, the, the, but, the, but, but the reality is that this, this sergeant is still on the force. He's still at work, still doing a paycheck. The question, of course, is why is he still there? And I'll close with that. And you know also, Haki, one of the things that that case um, brings out also is the historical um, behavior and relationship of how European men see women. One reason I think why he scratched his own so-called, um, I guess, um, partner, colleague, but because he really don't have no respect for women. He has no respect for women. He see them not as their equal. I doubt very seriously he would have done that to another man. But anyway, brother, that is an interesting story. I'd like to thank you. Let's move on to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, what's going on in your world in the community? Okay, uh, it's been a rather eventful week. Uh, uh, let's see, at home in Africa, Mali cut all political and cultural ties with France. Uh, they uh, they uh, broke off uh, diplomatic relations with France. Uh, told the uh, told the French troops to get out of uh, Mali, and also uh, changed their official language uh, from French to Bambara. And also uh, they also uh, decided to leave ECOWAS. Uh, that is the economic uh, community of West African states, uh, a regional uh, grouping, uh, because of the uh, blockade they enacted against Mali. And uh, so that may be of uh, rather historical significance. We'll see how things develop. Also, there is an organization in Britain uh, called Palestine Action that has been uh, uh, destroying uh, Zionist factories that manufacture drones in order to put uh, a stop to the drone attacks against the Palestinians. Also, uh, there was... uh, uh, in uh, St. Petersburg, Florida, a policeman was fired uh, was fired for tasering uh, a 64 year old man uh, four times, and uh, he's in a, uh, the man, the victim is, is in a wheelchair, but his rationale was that he had five warrants against. Uh, there were five warrants against uh, the uh, the man in the in the wheelchair. Who is an African? Uh, the 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 news article didn't go go into details of the ethnicity of the policeman. 
Well, definitely that brother rights for human rights were violated. He didn't have none according to this policeman. This is something his ongoing legacy in this country. And when it comes to Africans, not only in this country, probably find the behavior around the world. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Next we'll go to Brother Moses and bring him in. Brother Moses, tell us what's going on in your world in the community. Brother Moses. Well, the qu- very quickly and briefly, um, Thursday on the 27th, there was a demonstration in D.C. at the White House of Lafayette Square, Lafayette Plaza of um, Lafayette Square. Um, the answer coalition of Code Pink and different groups um, protesting the the situation with the Russian, uh, um, the, the U.S. Uh, warmongering and uh, um, trying to surround Russia with NATO and the, the protest against NATO, disband NATO, etc. Then, uh, side of the um, Trump, Donald Trump uh, had a rally in Florida, no, in Texas, I'm sorry, and um, he's saying if he is get reelected as president, he will pardon the uh, the January 6th protesters, etc. And uh, so those were two key things that thought happened this week. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Brother Moses. Next, we'll go to Sister Eleanor. Sister Eleanor, what's going on in your world and the community? Sister Eleanor. Good evening, um, listeners, and good evening, Brother Africa. Um, it appears that U.S. District uh uh, Judge um, J. Michelle Childs is going to be nominated for the Supreme Court. There have only been five women to serve and only two African-American men. So that's on the ups week. But uh, I would urge people to continue to stand up against uh, Israeli apartheid, against the Palestinians, and to recognize Israel as a military settler state. Also, uh, Afghanistan, people are starving, so we have some type of embargo on their assets, so we need to release them. And I would still urge Moderna and Pfizer to release their proprietary information to any pharmaceutical manufacturer on global globe on Earth, including the five in Africa that have asked to use the proprietary information and ask that it be released. Thank you, Brother Africa. And, of course, the snow is plundering and knocked people's utilities out up in up north in Massachusetts, 44,000 people without electricity right now. Thank you, Sir Eleanor. This is Africa on the move. We're going to quickly go to a rough culture break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about a very important subject that is having a profound impact on African people here and abroad. We're going to talk about the subject of human rights. And our special guest is Camille Laundry. She's going to give us a perspective not only on human rights, but why it's important that we begin to look at our, our struggle as a part of that part of that narrative. What are human rights? But based upon what we just heard just now, clearly there seems to be a lot of violations of human rights. So we're going to talk about that, and we're going to give our love to all of our brothers and sisters right now around the world, whether you're in Ghana, Nigeria, 
Togo, Cuba, Venezuela, Ecuador, West Papua, New Guinea, uh, Alzania. We love y'all, and we're going to spread this love with you, particularly our brothers with Angie Stone.
got to whack you back to Africa on the moon. We all know who set the world on fire, but we do know shortly we got a sister coming up. She's going to set this world on fire as we talk about human rights and how it impacts on our community. But real quickly, before we bring in Sister Camille, we just would like to remind you that please, if you have an um, audio book from Pan-African Roots Publishers, Volume 1 and 2, which is uh, named, We Demand the Full Disclosure and Digitalization of All Slavery Era Records. That's a book that talks about the historical legacy of who sold you, how much they sold you, how money was made off of your people, our people, under the institution of slavery. The author is Bob Brown. Go to this website, www.a-aprp. Dot gc.org. Find out more information. I can purchase the book, and we encourage you please support and purchase that book. So, right now, we have a special guest with us. We're going to bring in right now Sister Camille Laundry. She's a activist, a human rights activist. She's a writer. She's an educator. She's a mother. She's many things to many people. But she's one of those many sisters who plays a role of helping to hold up half of the sky. According to you, Brother Moses, and we're gonna bring in our beloved Sister Camille. We would like to welcome her to Africa on the Moon. Welcome, Sister Camille, for having me here to talk to your brilliant audience. And, and by the way, I want to say how much I just love the music you play because it makes you think. It makes you want to stand up, and we all need to stand up. That last one, though, there's a song that we used to sing in church. It went, God gave Noah the rainbow sign, no more water, but fire next time. And so I think that we ought to think about lighting some fires, my sisters and brothers. You can take that literally or you can take that metaphorically. I'm not the one to tell you how to achieve your liberation. But anyway, um, I also want to throw in a shameless commercial. Brother Bob Brown's book is one that is very profound and everybody should read. And uh, one of my roles is that I am the owner and operator, together with Bamboshi Shango, of Nappy Roots Books in Oklahoma City. And we carry Brother Bob's book. And so if you want to acquire it, you can do so by sending an email to nappyrootsbooks at gmail.com, and we will get you the book. So um, thank you very much for that. Excellent. So repeat that one more time. Repeat that one more time. Okay. It's Nappy Roots, Roots is plural, R-O-T-S, books at gmail.com. Okay? Just send me an email, and we will get back to you and find out where we need to ship it and give you the total cost for that and everything. that We can can provide the book to you. That's beautiful. All right. This is a Camille. We talk about... It's all yours. The mic is yours. Take it on. We're talking yeah. about human, yeah. rights, human rights. Tell us why okay. this is important so, to know about human rights. Okay. Human rights are important for African people to know about and to think about because one of the things that we tend to do is, you know, we've, we've all been struggling for, well, we've been struggling for our liberation since they put us on those boats. Okay. But, we do tend to focus rather narrowly on our own particular areas of interest or expertise. Um, 
educators talk about education, healthcare providers talk and organize around healthcare, other people focus on police brutality or criminal justice reform and so forth. And that makes plenty good sense. But there is power in unity. And one thing that unifies all of these struggles is human rights, because all of these are violations of our human rights. Now, you've noticed that you may notice that I say human rights and not civil rights. And that's an important distinction. Human rights are rights that are inherent to all human beings, regardless of their race, gender, nationality, ethnicity, language, religion, or any other status. They include the right to life and liberty, to freedom from slavery and torture, freedom of opinion and expression, the right to work and education and health care, and many other rights. And everybody is entitled to these without discrimination. It does not matter where you live um, or whether you're a citizen of a given nation. After all, nations are, are false constructs. You know, those lines on the maps were drawn by somebody with power without any consideration to the reality of community. Human rights are not civil rights. Civil rights are rights that are granted to people by a government. Um, In what we call our civil rights movement, we struggled, we, we fought to gain those civil rights because civil rights can be granted or denied by a government. For instance, the right to vote or the right to access public accommodations or the right to attend any school or the right to sit on in a front seat on the bus. All of these things can be legislated because they are civil rights, okay? Um, and and it, if you think about it, it kind of makes sense that a government could decide who gets to vote and who couldn't. What's wrong with that is that it's a violation of people's civil rights if some citizens have rights and others do not. But they can be granted civil rights or taken away by a government, but human rights are far more basic. Even the United States government recognizes that. If you read the U.S. Declaration of Independence, it says we hold these truths to be self-evident. In other words, any fool can see that all men, they did say men, they didn't consider women equal, and you know what they thought about us, that all men are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That means rights that cannot be removed for any reason. They came with you when you started sucking air on this planet. And that among those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, we know how that worked out for black folks on this continent. We know that they went so far, they jumped through so many hoops and bent over backwards to explain why we didn't deserve those rights. And they finally came up with the notion that we're only three-fifths of a human being, and so we do not have any of these rights because we are not human in the eyes of this nation. And we know how that played out. We know the story of slavery. We know the story of Reconstruction and Jim Crow. So fast forward to the end of World War II, when the world had truly horrible violations of human rights, and the war had devastated so many people, caused millions of deaths. It destroyed fields and bridges and waterworks and homes and schools and hospitals and Churches, you know, places of worship, it just devastated the part of the, parts of the world where it, you know, was in effect. 
So nations got together to form the United Nations. And the idea of that, the intention there, was to create some kind of mechanism that would promote diplomacy and communication and even cooperation as a way of preventing war. So the United Nations was formed in 1948. It is not insignificant that no sooner than it was formed, the United States, the United Nations, rather, as well as the USA, recognized the creation of the State of Israel, dispossessing the Palestinian people who had been there for eons, okay, and and robbing them of their civil rights and their human rights. But that's kind of another story. One of the first things that the United Nations General Assembly did was to say that it was there to support the rights and freedoms of all human beings. So in December 1948, in Paris, France, the UN got together and created the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, in which they outlined what human rights are and said that they should they accrue to every human being on the face of the planet, regardless of what country you live in and regardless of race, sex, gender, nationality, religion, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Interestingly enough, there were 58 members of the UN at that time, and 48 voted to pass it, eight abstained, two didn't vote. Guess who did not vote to pass the Universal Declaration of Human Rights? Well, that would be the good old USA. And if you think about what the United States was doing in 1948, I mean, some of the folks here on this call might even have been alive in 1948 and had to sit on the back of the bus and experience not having access to voting or to accommodations and so forth. The United States was in was deeply involved in apartheid and genocide against African people as well as indigenous people and other people in 1948. The United States has just thrown Japanese people into internment camps. Didn't do that to the Germans, by the way, you know, who who actually started that war. But they rounded up the Japanese people and put them behind barbed wire and then seized their land and their assets. So the U.S. voted, did not vote, rather, to ratify that human rights declaration, even though it passed overwhelmingly with the rest of the world voting for it, pretty much. So along comes Jimmy Carter in 1980 and tries to get the U.S. to ratify the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, but the Congress was not behind him. Because although Jim Crow was legally over by 1980, you don't have to look very hard to see how the United States was still routinely and systematically denying the human and civil rights of African people, of indigenous people, of Latinx people, a whole lot of people. Carter managed to get the um, Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women signed in 1980, but the U.S. government steadfastly refused to sign the the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So, you know, it's, it's interesting that the country that claims to be the land of the free and the home of the brave, out of one side of its mouth, in practice, and in its refusal to ratify the rights of human beings in general, also they refused to ratify the, the rights of the child, okay, um, that, that 
the United States led the battle to not uphold legally throughout the, the earth the rights of human beings, the rights of children. Then it is, my mommy used to say. We have been waging this battle since they threw us into the belly of those slave ships. Seventy years ago, black activists accused the United States of genocide. They should have been taken seriously because they had the evidence. On December 17, 1951, the United Nations received a petition delivered um, in Paris, France, at the UN Assembly by an activist, a brother by the name of William Patterson, and delivered in New York City by our brother Paul Robeson, who was a strong revolutionary warrior. Some of the other signatories to this act included the likes of W.B. Dubois and a lot of other leading black intellectuals. They accused the United States of genocide, specifically genocide against black people. Now, that whole word genocide was pretty new. It had only been coined about seven years prior to that during the war in a book about Nazi atrocities. And the United uh, Nations adopted the word genocide in 1948, but they failed to convict any nation of perpetrating genocide. Well, we know who, ha- who are the big powers in the United States, and the big powers in the United States were precisely those nations who were practicing genocide on the largest scale. So Robeson and Patterson's 240-page petition called We Charge Genocide, the Crime of Government Against the Negro People. They thought it was going to be sensational, that it would blow up and be on every newspaper in the country, every radio show and so forth. This was 1948, wasn't much TV around. So even though the United States at that very moment was very active in prosecuting the Nazis in the Nuremberg trials, um, now its own citizens were turning the lens back on the United States using the same language that the United States was using to attack the Nazis and saying, look, you are guilty of the same thing. Well, as you can imagine, probably because you you may never have heard of this, um, mainstream media ignored it pretty much. Um, The New York Times and the Washington Post had little brief stories buried in the back pages, but they categorized it as being, you know, nonsense, BS. The Chicago Tribune went so far as saying that it was a bunch of shameful lies. And the very person who had coined the term genocide said, no, 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 that wasn't genocide. That's just discrimination. Okay? So this came as no surprise to Brother Robeson and Brother Patterson. They knew that the U.S. had too much power at the United Nations for the U.N. to really do anything. So, you know, they, they kept on working to try to get the United Nations General Assembly and Commission on Human Rights or some other party to take up the issue, but it never happened. Well, continued. Going forward into the 21st century, a group of people um, who have been subjected to U.S. genocide within our borders, including African, Indigenous, Asian, Latinx, and others, gathered under the auspices of an organization called Spirit of Mandela. Let that sit with you for a minute. Spirit of If you've got to have somebody else's spirit, Mandibas would be a good place to start. So they call it the Spirit of Mandela, 
and they held a tribunal calling it, we still charge genocide. There was testimony and cross-examination by legal scholars in this tribunal, which, by the way, was held at the Audubon Ballroom. And when people stood to testify, they literally stood in the exact same place where Malcolm breathed his last. It's a very powerful thing. The tribunal's conclusions were read at the United Nations on the 25th of October and submitted to that body. We haven't heard back from them yet. But I want to talk about how the United Nations defines genocide. And um, I want you to consider whether you think the United States is guilty. Number one, genocide is killing members of the group. We have so many names that we could say, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and so, so many others that, that it's hard to even keep track of them. And that's just in the current day. Uh, not to mention the massacres, the mass killings of African people and other people in this country. Number two, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group. You know as well as I do what the history is there. Number three, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life that are calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part. And number four, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. Maybe somebody else could tell me why it is that black women in the United States have a higher infant mortality rate than in any other industrialized nation. And that no matter how rich or famous you are in the USA, if you're a black woman, you are more likely to die. And your baby is more likely to die in the process of giving birth than, it, than a white woman who um, has a, an income below $20,000 and dropped out of sixth grade. Doesn't matter who you are or how smart you are, how well-educated you are, how many resources you are. Racism is that powerful. And then the fifth um, feature of genocide is forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. Now, you might know the story of Indian boarding schools, how Native children were snatched from their parents, literally kidnapped, some as young as three years old, and sent to boarding schools whose slogan was, kill the Indian, save the man. They cut their hair and they beat them if they spoke their languages, and they did everything possible, and thousands of these babies died at the hands of these Indian schools. Let's look at the modern-day foster system, the so-called child welfare system, that currently has about a half million children in its custody across the United States. That's formal custody. There are another half million in informal custody where people say, I'm going to take this baby and we go send the baby to Auntie Sue because we don't want the Department of Human Services to come in. That's still a coercive transfer of the children to another group, Okay. So we're talking about a million children in this country, the majority, the vast majority of whom are black and brown. This is genocide. So I'd, I'd be interested, Brother Lee, do you think the, the United States of America is practicing genocide upon African people, upon indigenous people, upon other people? 
Brother Africa's mic must be off. That's all good. I'm, I'm sure if you would holler, I would hear your voice because yes, sister, I so hear you continue. You're doing well. You're doing well. Okay, okay. Um, it's it's hard to speak into a phone with no audience because if you were here, I'd be hearing some amens. I'd be hearing some right ons. I'd be he- I'd be seeing some heads nodding. You know, and I tell you what we can do shoulders. right now. I tell you what we can do yes, right sir. now, sister. Let's give you a few minutes to um, take a break. We're going to rub to a culture break, and when we come back, we want to continue this dialogue discussion on human rights. Let's do that. You listen to Africa okay. Moo as Sister Camille. We will continue our discussion on human rights, and later on you will have a chance to, um, to engage with her as we move forward tonight. So let's take this uh, particular break, and we'll be right back. This is Africa on the Moon. As we talk about human rights, how can we not forget about our brothers and sisters in Palestine? If you think of the Middle East in this modern time, you can't help but say the word Palestine. People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries, their freedom almost gone. Palestine Palestine. needs her freedom. Palestine Palestine. needs our love, needs our love. Palestine Palestine. needs her freedom. freedom. Palestine Palestine. needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth, take a stand for justice. That's what we've got to do, because Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. People of all countries, of every race, and creed. We need a new beginning. Let us plant the seed. Plant the seed of love and let that love seed grow. Plant the seed for everyone so all the world will know that Palestine Palestine. needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love, needs our love. Palestine, Palestine 
needs her freedom, needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine. needs our love. Brother in chains, living in pain, today is the same, and nothing ever changes. News, can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the light I see? I know I must be strong to last through my journey. Yeah, Time will arrive when we must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. We must prepare and learn how to care, but soon we'll be there while our lives won't be in danger. And when the light is clear, Oh, how beautiful I will be to know that I've been here and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 made it through my journey. Pellerino, a bloodline across the waters from Benin to Salvador Bahia, a scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino, you can feel the whip. Hear the cries and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino is the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces, crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun 
pronouncing his presence. Pellerino is the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. Know the chains of that great spirit did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pellerinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go. When the light is clear, oh, how beautiful I will be. Know that I've been here and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Welcome back to Africa on the Move. I'm in the seat, and we're going to take the heat. As we define it, we're going to stand behind it. And we have with us this evening our beloved sister Camille, who is doing an excellent job explaining to the listening audience worldwide the importance of understanding human rights. We can go back to our sister Camille. We're going to let her continue her discussion on human rights. And then we will open up to our panelists to let them have a discussion with her as it relates to the subject area. And you, too, will be given the opportunity to participate by calling in at 323-679-0841. Hit 1. We acknowledge our last forward your your last four numbers. Now, Sister Camille, one thing I would like to ask you briefly, if you could respond to, listen to the history and your definition of human rights, it seems to me that we have failed for the okie doke. They are taking our human rights within the confines of the U.S. government and imperialism and capitalism and turn them into civil rights. Your response to that, Sister Camille? They definitely did that. The United States has always said, I don't care what the rest of the world says, we're going to do what we're going to do. And if you intend to stop us, you're going to have to fight us. Um, If you recall your history, you'll know that there was a point in which um, the United United Kingdom, the Brits, um, outlawed the Atlantic slave trade. And, And they did not free all of the people who were in captivity in British colonies, but they outlawed the removal of people from Africa to take them elsewhere for slavery. And the United States basically um, prosecuted a war against the British Navy, which was foolhardy at best because they had the mightiest Navy in the world at that time, continued to um, go over and steal us from from, um, our homeland, our motherland, to bring us here. And that continued well until the point that uh, that the Civil War started in the United States. Um, the United States has always been a land of don't do what I do, do what I say do. The United States dwells in, in, I mean, you can smell the hypocrisy in the actions of the United States 
not only toward the rest of the world, but toward anybody within this country's borders that they consider to be less than. And that includes actually the majority of people in this country. Okay. Um, even white women didn't get the right to vote, you know, uh, in, in, until a hundred years ago. Um, and, you know, that, that's just the way the United States rolls. Um, I want to deviate a little bit from what I had planned to say because you played that song about Palestine. And I want to, I want to raise that issue to everybody's consciousness. Just last week, uh, January 27th, was um, the, the commemoration day of the Shoah or Holocaust. The word Shoah means catastrophe in Hebrew. Okay, and what happened to the Jewish people in in 30s and 40s was indeed a catastrophe. It was genocide, and we cannot support genocide against any people. But you know, so there were there were programs, and there were statues, and there were speeches, and there were all these other kinds of things on January 27th focused on dead Jews. But the, the hypocrisy of the United States is so great that they don't even focus on living Jews, okay? Just last week, people in the synagogue were taken hostage, but the government isn't going to do anything about the fact that any, any moron with the price to purchase one can buy a weapon of war, an automatic weapon, and use it to terrorize and murder anybody, anytime, and nobody's safe. You're not safe if you're attending kindergarten, in a school in Connecticut, you're not safe if you're sitting in a movie theater, you're not safe if you go to church and you're sitting there praying and, and invite your would-be murderer into your midst, you know, with hospitality. You are not safe anywhere in this country from the rage of white men. The hypocrisy is overwhelming. So when we're considering of genocide against human beings committed all over the world, especially those that are committed by this country that we live in, because we have a responsibility to pressure this nation in which we live to do the right thing, not only by us, but to do the right thing universally, globally. We have to remember Historically, indigenous genocide in, in the Western Hemisphere, not just the USA, we have to remember the transatlantic slave trade, which was an act of genocide. And what about the Belgian massacres in the Congo and all of the other massacres of African people in the name of colonialism so that they could take those trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars worth of resources out of the continent of Africa and use it to grow the forces of capitalism. Use it to make Europe rich and to keep Africa poor and weak. Right now, today, we're looking at genocide in Myanmar and Indonesia. By the way, those Indonesian people are African, in case you didn't know. And then there are the hundreds of thousands of people who've been disappeared by right-wing governments using American-trained, U.S.-trained soldiers and policemen, using weapons that were sourced through the United States, and using the political protection of the United States to wage war upon the people of Latin America and any place else that dares to rise up 
Papua New Guinea. Brother Bamboshi told me Papua New Guinea. There is genocide going on against the people of Papua, Papua New Guinea today, and those are African people. And let's not forget the deadly effects of U.S. sanctions and embargoes upon, upon Cuba, upon Venezuela, upon Nicaragua, and any place else that dares to rise up and say, we're going to do these things our way. Look at what the United States did in Libya, where under Muammar Gaddafi, there were no people without housing or education or medical care. Gaddafi said, "If you, I'm an African. Anybody in Africa who needs an education can come here and get one free. And what did they do to him? That is the hypocrisy of the United States when it comes to human rights. The United States serves capitalism and white supremacy and anybody who falls outside of those parameters does so at their peril people wonder why the folks of north korea decided that it was in their best interest to have thermonuclear weapons which are a terrible thing but you name me another country small country that's pissed off the united states that hasn't been attacked one way or the other and i will mention i will tell you that those are all countries that don't have weaponry that is sufficient enough to fight back against the United States. The United States has no regard for human rights. A little bit about what human rights are. It's the right to self-determination, to sovereignty over your natural resources. A sister earlier before I came on mentioned the fact that in Massachusetts, hundreds of thousands of people are without heat and electricity. Natural resources belong to the people who live in that land. Why should they be making somebody rich, taking our money and not delivering service? When you take the money and you're a power monopoly, it is a violation of human rights, first of all, for you to take those resources, and second of all, for you to fail to invest the profits from those resources into keeping them working. But in fact, the electrical grid in the United States was pretty much, we're working on technology that was built in the 1950s and 60s under the Eisenhower administration. See, I'm, I'm, I'm not a strong Demo- member of the Democratic Party, but the other day, just before Joe Biden went on TV to talk about his infrastructure bill in, Phil- in, in Pittsburgh, a bridge in Pittsburgh collapsed. So... Not having sovereignty over our natural resources is a violation of human rights because to enjoy our own culture and practice our own religion and speak our own language. And how many of us on this call have any idea what our original language or religion or culture even is? It has been stolen from us. Human rights include some civil rights and political rights the right to life and freedom from torture and slavery and freedom from arbitrary arrest and detention. I do not know a black man over the age of 16 who has not experienced driving while black, an unhappy um, involvement with the police department for no reason other than that your black body is behind the wheel of a car. We have the right to humane treatment and detention. Just two days ago here in Oklahoma City when I live, where I live, one man died and another one is currently on life support because they are in the county jail 
where raw sewage is on the floor. And I'm sure that each of you listening to me knows stories about the same kinds of things occurring where you live. We have the right to freedom of movement and residence, the right to expel aliens. Nobody has the right to come in and take your home. We have the right to freedom of thought and conscious and religious belief and the right of expression. We have the right to privacy and to not be imprisoned for debt. We have the right to a fair trial and the right to personhood under the law. No three-fifths of a man. That is a violation of human rights. We have the right to eat for the law. And we know that an African person charged with the same crime as a white person is more likely to be, first of all, more likely to be arrested. Secondly, more likely to be found guilty, more likely to receive a heavier sentence than a white person who does the exact same crime. We have the right to freedom of assembly and association, to marry and find a, and found a family. Our children have rights, and the children's rights include being left alone to live in their communities of origin. We have the right to be free from propaganda and to hold office and to vote in free elections. They've overturned the voting rights bill. How much blood was spilled for us to get that in the 1960s? And it's gone. We have the right to equal access to public service and to gain living by work that we choose and accept. And that work is supposed to pay us enough so that we are able to live. Do you know that if you get a job at Walmart today, that when they do your onboarding process and, and train you to doing your job, part of it is viewing a video that tells you how to get food stamps, daycare and housing assistance, because Walmart knows it is not paying you enough for you to afford those basics of food, clothing, shelter, health care, care for your children. All of these things are our human rights, adequate standard of living, medical care. The, we have the right to attain the highest standard of physical and mental health and the right to education. If you have a, a young person in your family who's recently graduated, the odds are they are at least $25,000 in debt, and most of them are actually further in debt than that. My children came out of school with fifty dollars and $75,000 indebtedness and still couldn't find a doggone job other than at the damn mall. Excuse my French. We have the right to free and compulsory primary education that works. Why is it that African children enter school typically at the age of three and head start? And even if you graduate, you're functioning, your functional level compared to other people in this country, much less the rest of the world, is liable to be at the sixth to eighth grade level. Why do we spend 15 years in school and get six years worth of education? This is the status of African people and so many others in the United States of America. The United States is the most egregious offender of human rights across the globe, bar none. There's never been anything like it with as much reach or more viciousness. I get it. I agree. Now, what the heck are we going to do about it? And I say that, again, unity When we fight against these violations of human rights, if we put it in the context of human rights, then we're working on each other's issues. 
I'm involved in criminal justice reform issues, but if we ignore what's going on with the people who are involved in trying to reform education, first of all, all these things are intersectional. The school-to-prison pipeline is a very, very real thing. So how am I going to talk about criminal justice reform and our rights as human beings to have you know, e- equality under the law without talking about education, without talking about the war on drugs, without talking about health care, without talking about housing, without talking about the monumental wealth gap that exists in the world in particular, but then in the United States and very specifically, where 1% of the people own more than the next 50% of the people underneath them, and hundreds of times more than the very poorest. So All of that, my sisters and brothers, is the reason that the organization I work for, which is called Alliance for Global Justice, has established the Lucy Parsons Popular Human Rights School. Now, in case you didn't know, Lucy Parsons was an African woman who lived around the turn of the last century and became a labor organizer and one of the leading philosophical leaders of the socialist anarchist movement in the United States. She was a labor organizer. She worked for human and civil rights. She worked to change and to topple the system of capitalism, which is the basis for our oppression. And so we named this school after Lucy Parsons, and it is the popular human rights school because we're talking about the rights of the majority, the masses of the people. We wanted to build bridges among the different facets of the organization and to strengthen communication channels between grassroots organizations. But most of all, we wanted to build capacity for grassroots activists to struggle and to create a unified struggle to change these violations of civil rights. Nothing could be more fundamental than that. We, we learn from, um, from our, our own scholars. We learn from uh, the, the people who are the, the I, I don't know, I, won't, I don't want to say founders, you know, um, but the, those people, those, those leaders that we, that we hearken to, okay, um, one of them is Seiko Ture, who has been called, you know, the father of of uh, Pan-Africanism, you know. And, and Brother Ture told us that without study and struggle, revolutionary study is fundamental to the process of creating social change. Um, uh, Kwame Nkrumah told us that struggle without principle and struggle without information is just chaos. So the of grassroots organizations to be able to um, engage in the struggle. And so the Lucy Parsons Popular Human Rights School will launch its first course for grassroots activists, which will not cost the participants anything as long as those participants are active in the struggle wherever they are and however they define that. And we're going to launch our first course at the end of April. And it's going to be constituted, uh, there will be six weeks of study. And all we ask, we ask two things. One is that 
that the people who take the course commit themselves to working the course material, to doing the reading, to engage in conversation, to engage in in consideration of the things that we're teaching. And number two, to go back to wherever they came from and to share that and to apply those things that they learn um, to the struggle in their own communities. And by doing that, we hope to build capacity for transformational change. You can find out more about the Lucy Parsons Popular Human Rights School by going to afgj.org. That's Alliance for Global Justice, afgj.org, slash HRS for Human Rights School. But if you only make your way as far as afgj.org, you'll find this on the front page. I hope that some of you will join us, and I would also encourage people who consider themselves to be scholars of liberation to talk to me so that I can include your voice in this teaching that we're doing. Because the only way, only way we are going to be able to move forward is through unity. The people united will never be defeated. So I'd my like to sister, hear from the audience. Yes, my sister, I'm about to tell you that um, you can bring it along and you damn sure bring it strong. That's what we like. So right now we're going to have open up to our listening audience and our panelists, and they will engage with you around this issue of human rights. We first will bring in our first panelist, Brother Haki. You can use five minutes or so with our sister. The mic is yours. Yeah, first let me just uh, express my uh, respect for the sister in terms of her analysis in terms of this whole question around human rights. And I think she's absolutely correct. When you talk about these so-called suppositions pertaining to human rights, like dignity, fairness, equality, respect, and independence, that she alluded to, we talk about these things, you know, but the reality is that in context of how capitalism functions, these things tend to be very antithetical in terms of the functioning of capitalism. But the question for her specifically is, is the kind of institutionalized destruction in terms of U.S. foreign policy. One of the things, you know, the sister talked about so-called a lot of the conventions that the U.S. refused to ratify. But there are specific uh, conventions that the U.S. refused to ratify, which has very uh, ominous implications, very destructive implications. Uh, of them is the, the refusal to join the International Criminal Court. Of course, we understand the U.S. in terms of propensity to use military force around the world illegally killing civilians and, and all kinds of atrocities and actually get away with it under the so-called authorization of, of uh, uh, military, military force, authorization of military, military force. Also, this whole question in terms of this, this treaty called the Comprehensive Nuclear Text, Text Ban Treaty, now, ironically, when we talk about you know, construction of nuclear facilities, and when we talk about Barack Obama uh, contributing a billion dollars to be further uh, additional tri- uh, trillion dollars by Trump in terms of creating nuclear weaponry, we don't talk about the fact the kind of nuclear waste that's attributed to those kind of processes and the inability to, dis- to the dispose of that nuclear waste creating health issues for the populace at large. Also, one of the treaties in which the U.S. refuses to, uh, to, to, uh, to ratify, the whole question around the, the Moon Treaty. And the Moon Treaty is, is important because it essentially talks about um, not to militarize space, and the U.S. refuses to ratify that. So when you, get, when you look at these treaties, 
uh, one of the things that, that stands out is there seems to be this, this institutionalized destruction or sort of this foundation which is based upon destruction. And my question to the sister in, in viewing these, these, these treaties, is it fair to say that in case of uh, American foreign policy that this whole question in terms of imperialism is in fact built into the system or built into the institution of the United States? That is absolutely the case, my brother. You have stated your case very beautifully. Um, the United States has always been an imperialist nation. One of the first things the United States did, the Congress did, right after the Declaration of Independence and the Continental Congress and the, and, and the Constitution was ratified and so forth, is the Monroe Doctrine, which said everything on this side of the Atlantic is our backyard, and we're going to do as we please, and we are going to institute, we're going to, um, we're going to apply force to reinforce our positions. And then they went about the business of invading and conquering and threatening every country, every group of people in the Western Hemisphere. The United States was founded as an imperialist nation. What's the first thing they did after ratification of the Constitution is to gobble up more indigenous land. The original 13 colonies were all on the east side of the Appalachian Mountains. And now the country stretches not only to the Pacific Island, but they decided they wanted Hawaii, and they went and took that too, and Alaska. And anybody else is liable to be next in line. So you're absolutely right. Imperialism is one of the foundations of capitalism, because if you don't have access to virtually limitless resources, then the state collapses upon itself. And so nobody anywhere is safe from imperialism. Usually, these days, the United States doesn't sail battleships into your, into your home harbor, but it uses embargoes, it uses sanctions, um, and sanctions kill. Sanctions kill. In Cuba right now, women are dying of breast cancer for the first time since the revolution. You know why? Because the United States embargo won't allow them to repair the machines that do mammograms. And so Cuba has lost the ability, even though they have a longer lifespan than the United States does, but Cuba has lost the ability to provide mammograms which detect breast cancer before it becomes deadly. This is genocide. Children in Iraq died from diarrhea and from measles and from diphtheria and whooping cough because U.S. embargoes against Iraq after they had bombed water treatment facilities and hospitals and schools back to the Stone Age point, they embargoed the country and you couldn't get vitamins. Pregnant women couldn't get pregnancy vitamins that prevent birth defects. And little babies were dying of diphtheria, which has not happened in that country for generations. The United States is genocidal, and it's neoliberalism and neo-imperialism is no less deadly than when they marched the Marines into people's countries. Second question, real, real quickly. Uh, I want you to speculate, uh, of course. Uh, this is a question around the funding for the U.N., because the U.S. Uh, disproportionately funds the U.N. to the, I think, to something like 22% of the funding comes from the U.S., 
they're in a strategic position to make decisions in terms of, you know, the overall functioning of the UN. Now, in your estimation, what can we do in terms of changing that number? Because it seems to me, unless we create a system which, you know, the funding of the UN is, is spread over a wider number of countries, then we run the risk of allowing the U.S. to have a, dis- a disproportionate amount of power in terms of what goes on to the UN. So what is your views on that? That is certainly the case, and that is one of the reasons why Pan-Africanism is vital to the survival of African people in the diaspora. Here in the United States, well, James Baldwin said it very well. He said to be black in America is to be African without memory and American without privilege. We are a nationless people, and unless, you know, we, we used to talk about back to Africa. Now we need to be talking about forward to Africa. Because unless we forge those bonds of power and claim the power of a people with a nation, then we can't, you know, we can't go to the United Nations and get them to do anything. Paul Robeson tried, and just a couple of months ago, another group of very strong, very brilliant African and indigenous and Latinx and other people went to do the same doggone thing, and not a peep has been heard from the United States, United Nations, rather, because we have no voice, right? So this is an international problem. But one of the things that could make a difference is if African people spoke with one voice. Then it's not Ghana saying something. Then it's not South Africa saying something. Then it's not the Congo saying something. It is a united Africa, which includes the Africans of the diaspora, making demands. Power concedes nothing without demand, Frederick Douglass told us. It never has and it never will. We have to join together because unity is power. Thank you, Brother Haki. What we can do right now is go to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, it's now yours. Thank you. Uh, Sister Camille, you gave a very powerful presentation, and I find your uh, your your remarks very insightful. Uh, I had never heard of uh, Lucy Parsons prior to the discussion we've had over the last couple of days about the Lucy Par- uh, Parsons Popular School for Human Rights. So this has been a, a very insightful conversation for me. Uh, my comment and or question is um uh Malcolm X made an observation uh many years ago that uh that uh Africans as some people in the diaspora, in particular in the US, uh limited their struggle to civil rights instead of human rights. And he pointed out that because they limited their struggle to civil rights, other countries could not get involved in, uh, in uh, you know, in their uh, in their issue because civil rights is considered a domestic issue, whereas mm-hmm. human rights, as you pointed out, is universal. Are are a lot of Africans? 
still making that error today. And also, uh, I think uh, I think you're correct about the the necessity for Pan Africanism, because uh, uh, you know, as thing, things stand right now, Africans in the diaspora for the most part are powerless because they don't control any land, particularly inside the U.S. There is not one resource that Africans have control over that other people need. And uh, and uh, Africa right now is fragmented into 54 uh, uh, political entities. So it has no effective uh, power whatsoever. And uh, so, uh, you know, so I think Pan-Africanism is indeed critical uh, you know, uh, to address this problem. And also, that can only be achieved through mass organization. So I would, uh, you know, like to uh, for you to uh, your comment on that. Um, you said it very beautifully, my brother. Only as strong as we are united and we are as weak as we are divided. And we have to remember that when we are considering that our struggle is part and parcel of the global struggle for liberation. And until, unless and until we see it in those terms and deal with it in those terms, we will not possibly be successful because the thing that we're struggling against is so massive and so mighty and so all-encompassing and so all-controlling that there is nothing other than unity that will make it fall. But don't make the mistake of thinking we're alone. Even if you look back to last year when George Floyd was murdered on on television, basically, you know, just about everybody in the world saw the picture of our brother lying there calling for his mother while the pig put his knee on his neck. And there were demonstrations across the globe where millions, literally millions of people turned out to say, United States, Fix your shit. Excuse me. Um, no, don't excuse me. I meant what I said. Okay? I understand, so, I understand perfectly. Oh, go ahead. We do have allies. We Sister do have allies. Sister Bregenstrom. Amen. Okay. All right. So we do have allies. There is the potential there for unity, but you can't have an ally if you don't recognize the ally. When people turned out in Paris, an awful lot of those people were African. And you know why? Not only did they feel our pain, but they were saying, same thing's happening here. They had our backs. We need to have their backs. We need to recognize the universality of our struggle, and we need to do everything we can. We need to put our resources behind it. We could struggle from now till the cows came home. And we will not have equality in this country as long as it exists the way in, under the form that it exists now because it was born on, in slavery and genocide and land grabbing and hatred against everybody that wasn't white, male, and Christian. In fact, white, male, and Christian only from certain nations because if you were Italian or something like that, you weren't particularly welcome either. 
okay? They, they're just a little bit too brown. Hannibal spent a little bit too much time, you know? But mm-hmm. this, is, this is the birth of the United States is in genocide, is in slavery, is in hatred and oppression and exploitation. And people mm-hmm. don't grow out of it. You look at somebody five years old, and if they're a bully when they're five, they're going to be a bully when they're 55. Am I wrong? You're right. You know, so we, we have to look at our struggle as part of a global struggle, and we have to understand that when there is unity, there's victory. But unity comes at a price. Sometimes it means that you have to put your own personal considerations aside for a minute to join, to lock arms in the struggle with somebody who's going through something different, and, and this is the, the, the thing that has the potential to be changed at this moment. Struggle mm-hmm. is always sacrificial. It ain't yes. going to happen by prayer. Lord have mercy, if prayer was going to free black people, we would never have been unfree because nobody prays more than black people. We are not going to mm-hmm. pray our way to freedom. We're not going to sing our way to freedom, and we're not going to get our our freedom by being the perfect Negro. If there's one thing that Barack Obama taught us, if there was only one thing, it is that it doesn't matter how well educated you are, how beautifully you speak, the fact that your paths never sag, and that you have perfect children and a perfect wife, you're still a nigger. So you can't be good enough to gain the acceptance of your oppressor because the oppressor benefits from your oppression or thinks that they do. Same difference, yeah. really. Yeah. Well, let's see. The Libyan, the, the invasion of Libya uh, brought that out very clearly, you know, in my oh, opinion. Yeah. Uh, and also, uh, you know, I think, I think you're correct, but I think a key, I think a key is that we have to teach our youth, especially the truth about our history. They're only getting yes. they're, they're getting little uh, of any of it in the school system, and uh, and uh, and uh, you get leadership like uh, uh, like the Obamas of the world and whatnot from depending upon your enemy to educate your children. So, uh, you know, I, I I agree with your point completely, but uh, uh, I think uh, I think the opposite an obstacle to unification is the fact that we don't understand that the people across the ocean are are, are us. We're a part of the people, uh, uh, the masses of the people. A lot of us don't understand that we're Africans, and that's and that's because of the confusion spread by the enemy. But we are, but but we are, you know, one African people. What no matter where in the world we live, that's one of the many lessons Nkrumah left us with. Indeed, indeed, and that works both ways um, because the people in the continent are unfortunately still embedded in a kind of a tribalism that produces problems too. But. You have to understand that the root of that is in colonialism, when they deliberately drew lines to bring people into the same nation who had been traditional enemies and to exclude other members of that same nation who might be in unity. You know, look at the way Nigeria was carved up, the Cameroons, Ghana, many of those nations. This this 
separation that we deal with was not accidental. It was very deliberate. These people are past masters at divide and conquer. Okay, so it's been going on for many a generation, and we have to overcome our differences to see our similarities and, most of all, to see our common enemy. And just because you're in unity with somebody doesn't mean that you 100. It's like the difference between taking a bus and taking a taxi cab, okay? If I need to get where I'm going and I'm standing out on that bus stop, because I don't have money for a taxi, because the bus stop is the only thing available to me, the bus stop is not going to pick me up at my door and deliver me directly to my destination. I'm going to have to walk. I'm going to have to have a transfer. I'm going to take the bus as far as it goes. It's not taking a taxi cab. Ain't no taxi cabs to liberation. But you get on the bus and you take the unity as far as it goes, okay? Because what kind of fool would I have to be to say, I'm going to walk across town because this bus is going to make me walk four blocks when I get off of it anyway, so I might as well walk 14 miles. I'd be some kind of fool. We have to see unity. Unity ain't getting together and singing Kumbaya and I love you. Unity is getting together to do the things to fight the common oppressor and to build capacity within ourselves because Defeating the, the oppressor is only part of the problem. The other part of them is dealing with the woundedness of our cultures, of our community, that have been created by these generations upon generations of oppression. We have to heal ourselves because we Lomo can't re, uh, rely upon outsiders to heal us. Ain't no, ain't no white messiah coming to save us. You know, I'm pretty sure ain't no black messiah coming to save us either. For that matter, we have to be the source of our own liberation, and that is always sacrificial, and it always means seeing ourselves not as individuals but as a part of a, of a community and holding those other lives in as high an esteem as we hold our own and those that we know and love. Yeah. Thank Shake you. A true revolutionary is motivated by great feelings of love. If you don't have love for the people, you ain't talking about revolution. You're talking about chaos. Mm. Sister Camille, before we go to our next panelist, I would like to have you to respond to this phenomenon that took place last week where Mitch McConnell made a statement that he deemed black voters not real Americans or they're in a subject class as the rest of Americans. They are in a subject class. They see black Americans not as being Americans or so-called not real Americans. What do you draw from that statement? Who's surprised? You know, when somebody, Mitch McConnell has basically an ultimate form of power, and, and he, he owes now rotten so-and-so, his lips get to flapping, and the truth pops out. We know that we are not full citizens with the full rights of citizenry in the United States. Again, James Baldwin said it's being black is being American without privilege. Okay? We've always known that. That comes as no surprise. The fact that he was bold enough to say those words on national television, you know, say those words openly, tells you how little regard that those people hold you in. Maya, 
Maya Angelou said, when somebody t- shows you who they are, believe them. All right, thank you. We move to our next panelist. We now going to bring in Brother Moses. Brother Moses, the mic is yours. How are you with us, Brother thank you, Moses? Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Brother Africa. Um, um, it's a very, very, very intelligent um, discussion here. Um, um, the analysis has been great. Uh, certainly we support the Pan-African the unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Um, um, uh, let me see. Marxism teaches that the state of government comes about due to the emergence of class society. The essence of the, the existence of the state is recognition that there are classes in the social order and that one class has to control the rights of the other classes in order to dominate society and pursue its class interests. That's basic Marxism, i.e., the state can only serve the interests of one class. There can be only one ruling class dictating its interests to the rest of the social order and thereby suppressing the interests of the other classes. In fact, the essence of the struggle reveals that there are only two classes in developed capitalism, i.e., workers and the owners. Racism is a strategy of the owning class to divide and conquer the workers in order to maximize profits. Pigmentation of the skin is not that critical otherwise. It is a tactic used by the black owners to keep their market cordoned off and exclusive to them. It is a tactic used by the Anglo owners to gain super profits, above normal exploitation from the people of color by pitting white workers against non-whites, telling the Anglos that they are superior and that their interest is threatened by the interests of colored people paying Anglo workers more crumbs from the table than other workers receive. Reality there is an Afro-American nation developed historically on the land of the Black Belt South, including Mississippi. A nation is not a race, but a historically evolved community of people. That's the reality, but the, quote, common sense, unquote, of the world does not accept the fact. Bill Clinton and Jimmy Carter are members of the community of the Black Belt South and are members of the Afro-American nation, just like a person born in France is French. I'm a scientist with an ideology of scientific socialism that was founded by Karl Marx and developed by Engels, Lenin, Stalin, and Mao. Trotskyites and petty bourgeois intellectuals love a variation on Jewish theory which says that the ethnicity and culture are what makes a nation. They focus on a characteristic of nationhood and try to make that proof that there is a right to sovereignty for their narrow nationalist interests. Israel is founded on Jewish narrow nationalism. White nationalism is no different from black nationalism in that both are ideas being perpetuated by the interests of a few as nothing but idealism and not dialectical and historical materialism upon which Marxism and scientific socialism is based. It shows a lack of love for people and chauvinism, a.k.a. a superiority complex in the person. It indicates denial and hatred, ultimately, of people. We are just matter that thinks. There is nothing sacred about skin color. We are all human and have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We need compassion, empathy, and caring for all people. In other words, I'm, I'm for working-class struggle and... Uh, I recognize the oppression of of, of national minorities, and uh, and I hope that we can unite to 
to defeat the few. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Before we go to before we go to Sister Eleanor and Sister Camille, I'll let you respond to his statement. I would just like to make that when you look at the history of the struggle of African people, uh, you know, one cannot negate the aspects expect of race and class as a component. And Nazism does have a role to be played. It's not a it's not an end game, but it has an aspect that um at certain stages of development and condition that it can play a role of moving our people forward to that total liberation. Yes, Sister Camille, you can respond now. Only thing I can say to that is a shade. And right on. And moving forward, we bring our other sister in. She also helped one of those that helped hold up half of the sky. Sister Eleanor, your response with our sister Camille, the mic is yours. Thank you, Brother Africa. Thank you, Sister Camille, uh, for the excellent uh, uh, presentation. Human rights, and as you said, the U.S. has purposely, because of our own actions domestically, could not sign on to the U.S. Human Rights Proclamation. People pull them on the rug. How are you going to do that? Um, organization seems to be the uh, most vital role. What do you think and what is your response to the uh, voter suppression laws and uh, the uh, anti-abortion laws, the voter suppression laws that have been passed at 39 states since uh, November 2020. What is your response and what should be the response of the people? Well, we had to rise up. We had to take to the streets and we had to um, make it very clear that we had had about as much as we were going to take of a lack of civil rights. In the 50s and the 60s, we had to we had to rise up, and we won the right to vote um, through struggle, through serious, profound struggle. Blood was shed. You know, uh, we have martyrs. I could name them. You could name them. Um, it wasn't something that we did by sitting home. A quick division ain't go cut it. Sending, you know, posting something on Facebook, that's a good way to start a conversation, but it's not a good way to pursue the action that's necessary to regain those basic civil and human rights. And so as long as we're sitting back, and, and it's no accident that people are, you know, we work, I work twice as many hours as my, my parents worked you know, um, just to make a, a basic living. That's not accidental. You know, that is the way capitalism perpetuates itself, and that's the way they they maintain hegemony, tired, too woe out, and too frightened to be able to fight back. But fight back we must. It is absolutely necessary. But as long as we're laying there taking it, they're going to dish it out. Um, 
the 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 these abortion laws. I was on a call early, just earlier today about this. The state of Oklahoma is about to get the Texas bill. It's going to be shoved mm. down our throats. You know, where individual citizens have the right to prosecute and persecute women seeking to control our own reproduction. This is the power in this country telling you that if you're black, if you female, if you brown, if you anything other than a supporter of ours who is white and male and Christian, then the hell with you. We're going to do what we will upon you. They're worried about the birth rate falling because there aren't enough people to work and pay taxes to support the wealthy in this country and to continue the current system of economic exploitation, which is capitalist America. And they will do anything, and your rights as a human being do not count. Do you know that a dead person has more autonomy over their body than a woman in the state of Texas or Oklahoma or much of the rest of the country? Because when I die, I can say I will or will not let parts of my body be used by somebody else. That is my legal right. But in the state in which I live, I don't have the right to say I refuse to be an incubator. There is no end to the oppression. There is no end to the hatred. There is no end to white supremacy until we end it. Thank you, Sister Camilla. Do you think that uh, in in terms of these uh, Jim Crow ID laws that they passed with these new voter suppression uh, bills with the elimination of uh, black uh, voting sites in black neighborhoods and uh, the restriction in assisting voters if they're distressed or need water or this kind of thing. Do you think that there is a legal remedy or, as you said, must we go to the streets? Well, I think both. both. I I think absolutely both. When you're attacking an enemy, especially one who is more powerful than you, you don't take one line of attack. You know, um, all out war is all out war. So we have to we have to fight in the courts. We have to fight in the legislatures. We have to fight, and we have to invoke economic power. Um, you know, the Montgomery bus boycott was successful because black folks bankrupted. The Montgomery Bus Company, not because they finally saw the light because we're all such worthy people, and they said, oh, my bad, we shouldn't have been doing that. No, that's not the way that went. The way that went is that we put an economic hurting on them, and they had to listen. So we have to use all methods that are at our disposal to combat this, you know, and and that certainly includes legislative and political approaches, but if it includes economic sanctions, sanctions, you know, sanctions work when the United States is is pursuing them against Cuba or Venezuela or Iraq or Nicaragua, you know, um, sanctions will work when they're used against the United States, against the U.S. government. Um, we have to use political, uh, we have to use social pressure. 
See, there there was a time when it was perfectly okay to say, I don't want my little children to go to school with niggas. And then we managed to create a situation in which it, if you said that, you could think it all you wanted, but if you said it in public, other people would say, well, what kind of a monster are you? And that comes from social pressure and organizing. So we have to attack this thing on all fronts. But we will not win just by trying to appeal to the decency of our oppressors because the oppressor ain't got no decency. We have one last question. Um, uh, first of all, Sister Camilla, thank you so much. It's, it's just been your presentation and and the oral history and the it's 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 beautiful and wonderful uh, and so enlightening. Now, in reference to uh, the proposed nominee of the U.S. District Court being an African-American woman, what do you see happening with that? Thank you, Sister Eleanor. I I, I wouldn't be surprised if the Republicans acted like the fools that they are um, forward to having that representation. Again, incremental change is better than no change at all, but we cannot... Malcolm said, you know, if a man plunges a knife into your back and pulls it out six inches, that isn't fixing anything. The wound has not been healed, you know. And so that kind of incremental change is good to see. And it would, the Supreme Court is an instrument of oppression, particularly the way it is constituted. And it would be a good thing if we did have a progressive black woman on the Supreme Court. But if you think that your oppressor is going to hand you the instrument of their downfall, you got another thing coming. So don't expect too much because they don't have the power. You know, Barack Obama did not have the power to change the course of the United States. He took a job as president of the United States and that job description includes continuing American hegemony. Okay, that is the job description. So nobody should have been surprised when he failed to grant us our liberation because liberation doesn't come in that in that form and in that fashion. Nobody should be surprised if getting a black woman on the Supreme Court fails to make the Supreme Court truly responsive to the needs of the masses of people in this nation, be they black, brown, white, purple, green, or otherwise. Empire does not give up its power. Okay, my sister, on that note, what we're going to do, what we're going to do right now, Sister Camille, we're going to take a Rubberstone break. When we come back, we're going to do our final remark summary from you as it relates to human rights. You're listening to Africa on the Move. If you're on my board and you would like to have a comment, please make sure when we come back, you hit one and we will acknowledge your last four numbers. This is Brother Africa. And like we say on the station, we may not give you what you need. We may not give you what you want, but we definitely try to give you what you need because this is Africa on the Move. We'll be right back. This is a message to the people. Oh, it will be solved. 
There's a difference between revolution and reform. Big difference. In reform, a man observing a foundation, observing a system, sees many problems. But he assumes that there's nothing wrong with the system. The foundation of the system for him is a good system. Thus, what he seeks to do is to change the building as best he can, but he wants to leave the foundation intact. Example, if I came to this building, it's Ackerman Hall, is it not? If I came to Ackerman Hall and I looked at the foundation, the foundation was falling. It was just falling, couldn't possibly stand. If I were a reformist, I'd say, okay, put a piece of board over that. So we cover the foundation. We haven't touched it. And then I'll come here and say, put a window there. Put a door here. Put a frame here. Put two rooms where there used to be one. What I'm doing is reforming the system. I am trying to make it look different, but I'm keeping the same rotten foundation. You must understand that because this country is full of reformists, black people notwithstanding. And these reformists have a tendency to deceive you to let you believe that things are really being changed when in fact the foundation has not been touched and the longer it stays, the more rotten it becomes. The more rotten it becomes. A revolutionary comes into the building, observes Ackerman Hall and says, looks at the foundation and said, hey, this foundation is filthy, it's rotten, it's corrupt. It must be torn up. A new one must be put in its place. Once he makes that decision, and once that theoretical decision which he's made is demonstrated actively in his day-to-day -day life, you have a revolutionary. Thus, a revolutionary is not someone who seeks to reform a system. He's someone who seeks to replace it. I'm a revolutionary. I'm not a reformist. I want the American system destroyed. It must be destroyed and has to be replaced. It has to be replaced. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Again, I'm not calling for revolution. I see it coming, and I want to be part of the solution. I don't want to be part of the problem. I've been the victim too long, so I want to be part of the solution. I am saying that all of us must opt for revolution. All of us must opt for revolution. Now, revolution is very scientific. There's nothing emotional about it. There's nothing emotional about it. President Sekou Toure, a wise and courageous African revolutionary, says that in revolution there is no sentimentality. There is none. Whether I like something or do not like something, it is scientifically determined for me, thus I must do it. So I have no sentiments involved in my work. I just have to do what I have to do, and I will do it the best way I can. Best way I can. Now, revolution, we said, follows scientific laws. If you come and you look at the foundation and you see the foundation is rotten and you say that you want to replace this foundation, you want a new system, you're asking for revolution. Because what you're saying is that you want another system where there is a system. And we know scientifically that no two things can occupy the same place at the same time. I mean, that's logic. So if you say that uh, you're against capitalism, and you want another system put in the place of capitalism, then all you're saying is that you want revolution because capitalism and this other thing cannot occupy America at the same time. Only one, only one will occupy it. Only one will be dominant. Thus, if you say you want revolution, you understand you're talking about scientific principles. Two systems cannot occupy the same space at the same time. I'm opposed to capitalism. I seek, I seek an economic system which must follow the principles of scientific socialism. This system must come, will come, all over the world, 
America notwithstanding. It must come and will come. To Welcome to Pilgrim And to the Buffalo Who once ruled a plane Like the vultures Circling beneath the dark clouds Looking for the rain Looking for the rain Just like the city that stagger on the coastline In a nation that just can't stand much more Like the forest buried beneath the highway Never had a chance to grow Never had a chance to grow And now it's winter Winter in America Yes, and all of the healers Have been killed Sent away Yeah, but the people know The people know it's winter in America and ain't nobody fighting cause nobody knows what to say save your soul Lord knows from winter in America the constitution a noble piece of paper with free society The struggle but they died in vain And now democracy Is a ragtime on the corner Hoping for some rain It's looking like he's a hoping Hoping for some rain And I see the robbers First in barren treetops Watching last ditch races marching across the floor. But just like the peace behind that vanished in our dreams, never had a chance to grow. Never had a chance to grow. And now it's winter. in America and all of the healers have been killed or betrayed yeah but the people know the people know it's winter Lord knows it's winter in America Nobody knows what to say Save your soul From a 
change all that through understanding the necessity for organization. Organization is a weapon of the press. Let's get organized like the sister is advocating, Sister Camille. Before we get Sister Camille's final thoughts on the theme, on the topic night of human rights, we would like to make an announcement to you right now and remind you that the time to start acting now must begin to start organizing. If you want to know what human rights look like, we will advocate you to join Africa on the Move along with the African Awareness Association. They'll be taking their annual Black History Educational and Cultural Travel Challenge. That's right, to Cuba. They'll be going to Cuba from July 23rd to 31st. They'll be um, June or being visit, we'll be visiting three provinces. One is Guantanamo, second one is Santiago, and the last one is Havana which is the capital of Cuba. We come and tell you, please contact the African Awareness Association if you're interested in going by emailing them at African Awareness Association 2 at Gmail or go to their website, which is www.aaa-cubatours.com. Again, wwwaaa Cuba, C-U-B-A tour, C-O-U-R-S. You know, Cuba has done so much for African, African people in the world and continue to do that. Don't tell you Cuba is an African country and we want you to come. Come and see Cuba for yourself and to testify what life is like in Cuba a little bit and how um, brothers and sisters live in Cuba and the Cuba experience. We can just ask Brother Haki and ask briefly if they can give a little a little taste of honey on how beautiful Cuba and Cuban people are based upon that visit of going to Cuba. So right now we're going to bring Brother Hackey, who is a member of the African Women's Association, who is sponsored to it. Brother Hackey, talk to us a little bit about why people should go to Cuba, particularly the Africans from here and all loving people. You know, uh, one of the things, when we try to, when we try to implement, you know, political change in community, we do so out of, out of the understanding that to do so would be with a misbenefit to the masses of people in our communities and throughout the society at large. Well, going to Cuba is sort of like um, looking into a mirror. Uh, the kind of the, the, the spirituality, the, the willingness to work together, the kind of optimism that is exudes by the, uh, the Cuban people is something to behold. The ability in terms of working together to intuitively understand the importance in terms of organization. And so when you look at this kind of thing, then you understand that all things are possible. So Cuba is the, is the quintessential example in terms of what we could be. And we have much to learn from Cuba in terms of not only uh, its understanding of world politics, but also in terms of its, its, its understanding in terms of in order to resist the pressures of, you know, by Western states. It is imperative that we have some, some, some you know, some, a, a great deal of love for our, for our fellow man and woman, uh, because that is key in terms of uh, preventing the West from dividing and conquering. So Cuba is, uh, so it's a substitute of a whole. So people need to go to Cuba firsthand to see for themselves. Talk to the people. Ask the questions. The good thing about the Cuban people is that they are aware. They're not, they're not like, like a, lot of, a lot of us in America. 
Uh, we ask a lot of people in America about specific questions as pertains to politics. People may not know. In Cuba, people are open to all questions, regardless of how intricate the question is, how complex the question is, regardless of how mundane the question is. The Cuban people are thinkers, and it's a that's exactly attributed to the fact that you got one of the best best educational systems in the world. That little small country of 11 million people has one of the best educational systems in the world. Not only did it produce some of the leading doctors in the world, it also produced some of the leading researchers in the world, leading educators in the world. So given that, so given that background, there's much to be learned from Cuba in terms of implying a lot of those principles, you know, in our day-to-day struggles here in America in terms of trying to overcome this, 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 this insane, this insane uh, world in which we're subjected to on a daily basis. So I encourage people to go to Cuba, to see the health firsthand, to ask those questions, and to just observe the, the, the Cuban people. Look at the organizations. Uh, so when we talk about one thing I'm close to this, brother, Africa, but when we talk about in terms of organization among people, you talk about the, the, the Center for the Defense of the Revolution. You talk about the community being organized around the question in terms of needs of the country. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing because what it means is that when you talk about democracy, it's democracy in its truest sense because it's, it's, it's all about the empowerment of people from the ground up, not in Amer- like in America where the empowerment of the people top down. So Cuba is an example of real democracy, so I encourage people firsthand to go for themselves Instead, to ask those questions in which they, uh, which they may have some, some concerns about. Cuba's a very beautiful place, and I'll close with that. And Brother Anthony, talk to us, Brother Anthony. Why is it important for us to connect with and show our, our love and our familyship with our brothers and sisters in Cuba? Uh, certainly. Um, Cuba has contributed a great deal uh, to the African Revolution, and also uh, and also to the World Socialist Movement in general. Those are two key reasons why Africans, Africans uh, should visit Cuba. And also, Cuba has uh, uh, shown support for the struggles of Africans in the U.S., by offering uh, a refuge to uh, uh, to some uh, to some of our political leadership in the past, as well as uh, operating Elam, uh, the Latin America uh, School of Medicine of the Americas, and uh, in which they uh, they accept Africans. Uh, from throughout the diaspora and from the continent, and uh, they uh, their their training in the healthcare professions is free on the condition that they go back to their respective areas and practice medicine in their underserved communities. And also, uh, there is a uh, Cuba is similar to most of the islands of uh, of the Caribbean in that it has a very heavy African presence. And uh and uh that is the most cult, uh the greatest cultural similarity that Cuba has uh to the rest of the Caribbean. And also over the years since uh its revolution it has given 
uh, all types of aid to African countries fighting for the liberation, including uh, military, medical, uh, and economic assistance where possible. Uh, uh, Most notably, uh, Grenada during the brief phase of its revolution. And also, uh, mostly Africa gives uh, educational and medical assistance uh, to underserved countries throughout uh, the Southern Hemisphere, even though it is a poor, struggling country of itself. It is willing to share what limited resources it has with uh, humanity to the extent that it is possible. So again, brothers and sisters, get on board, get on board if you want to go on this tour. It's coming up on the 23rd of July to the 31st. And for the brothers and sisters who live outside America, we want you to come and join us. We all going to congregate from Cancun, Mexico. And if you want more information, you can call D numbers as well. You can call 804-549-7492 or 202. Seven one four nine four three five. Come and see Cuba for yourself. Now going back to our special guest today, Sister Camille, who has been doing an excellent job of speaking to and talking about and getting us a better understanding of what is human rights. Sister Camille, we're going to let you have a mic and give us your final thoughts on the subject uh, subject of human rights. Your final thoughts, Sister Camille. Cuba, according according to Fidel Castro, Cuba is an African nation. You should go to Cuba so that you can see what black power can achieve because black power was an instrument. The power of black people was an instrument towards Cuba's liberation. Black folks helped make that revolution. So you should go to Cuba if for no other reason than to see what black power can do when it is properly applied. Um, But I digress. I also wanted to point out that when we struggle for our own liberation, we're really struggling for the health and the well-being of the entire planet. Capitalism is so greedy that they would wreck the only planet that that has human life on it for the sake of greed. So we fail to struggle at our own peril. The purpose of revolution is to ensure human rights and justice to the people. Um, Ahmad Siko Ture, who was one of the great minds of the revolutionary pan-African movement, said, without revolutionary consciousness, there can be no revolution. The revolutionary consciousness comes from um, the, its development. It's not fundamental to us, nor does it come into being and develop spontaneously. History teaches that it is created and developed through ideological education and revolutionary practice. We can equally affirm that without ideological training and without revolutionary action, there can be no revolutionary consciousness. Thus, we have created the Lucy Parsons Popular Human Rights School. Go to AF as in Frank, org and look for the Human Rights School. 
Please participate in this effort to build the capacity for transformational and fundamental social change. And I'm going to close with a quote from Brother Martin who said, if you can't fly, then run. If you can't run, then walk. If you can't walk, then crawl. But whatever you do, you have to keep moving forward. Thank you, Brother Lee, for hosting me. Thank you for all who listen, and thank you for all that all of you do. And Sister Camille, for people who may hear this program, if they would like to invite you to their community to talk about the issue of human rights and other works that are important to our communities that you do, how can they contact you? You can contact me through afgj.org. The contact information is on the front. When you call that number, they will, I won't ask you to try to remember my phone number. When you call that number on the AFGJ website, um, it'll give you a list of the people who work there and a number to punch to come through to my voicemail. Um, But I am Camille Landry, and um, our organization is Alliance for Global Justice at AFGJ.org. And again, thank you very much. And and might I repeat that Bob Brown's book is available through our bookstore at nappyrootsbooks at gmail.com. So thank you again, Brother Africa, and thank you for all of my fellow revolutionary sisters and brethren who are struggling not only for our liberation, but for the health, the sustainability, the well-being of the entire planet. And sister, we'd like to thank you for all that you do and continue to do for our people and humanity. And we are staying in touch, so if anything comes up, you know you have our number. Give us a call. The station here for the people. So, again, we thank you for your contribution to today's program. We thank you. All right, audience, what we're going to do right now, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to um, capture all our theme tonight with a discussion of part two. Blacks are not Americans. We can capture that all, and we're also going to do a little tribute, acknowledgement from our brother Anthony, where we acknowledge the transition from one of our revolutionary brothers who just made a transition, Brother Clyde Bellicor from the Indigenous Nation. Um, and he's going to make a statement that was beautifully written to the world in terms of his contribution on behalf of the AAPRPGC. So those two things that's coming up, don't you go nowhere. And remember, this is Africa on the Moon.
Flavor Singing Ensemble from North Carolina. We are the cultural arm of worker and civil rights organization, Black Workers for Justice. Um, we came in from Raleigh, North Carolina, from Jacksonville, North Carolina, from Durham. Um, and we're here because we support and we are part of the labor movement, but also part of the environmental justice movement, too. We are with UE150, the North Carolina Public Service Workers Union, local of the United Electrical, Radio, and Machine Workers of America. In our communities, we fight on the job, but we also see the need to fight in our communities. There is no distance between the two. If we want justice on our jobs, we have to fight for justice in our communities. A lot of our communities face um, environmental hazards. Uh, some of us come from communities that have super fun sites in the middle of them. Some of us are part of organizations, environmental organizations that fight against coal ash ponds, that fight, that are currently fighting against the um, Atlantic Coast Pipeline, which will come through predominantly of colors, communities of color, black and Native American communities. Um, so we're fighting against that. We're fighting against hog farms, uh, proliferation in North Carolina, and the dumping in our streams from being contaminated from hog farms. So we see the intersections between workers being poisoned on the job and workers being poisoned in our communities. We want to close with a song. So we wrote a song, Fruit of Labor wrote a song uh, about water contamination based upon struggles that were going on in North Carolina. So we're going to do a little bit of it right now. Okay. It's called Justice Flowing Down Like Water. Family drank from a deep clear well to the ox and moved underground. Now the only story left to tell is innocence lost in community action. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Little girl don't read so well, there's a lot that she'll never see. Some say it's the mercury in the fish of mama heat. Power plants causing you and me. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water safe for all. Justice flowing down like water. Clean water, safe for all. Clean water, clean water, safe for all. That's it. <laughs> We'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the, on the Move. We will continue our program and we speak to our part two, Blacks are not Americans. We are highlights the articles that shows and reinforce the statement. Blacks are not Americans, because if they were Americans, as Malcolm would say, you wouldn't catch the hell you catch. Now, this particular article was an article of interest, not because of that particular one act, but it has a whole historical um, legacy of African people in this country being treated like this particular young individual. And I can open up the panel line for my panelists, and we can have each one of them to respond to it, and you, the listening audience, if you would like to respond to it, feel free to call in at 323 
0841-323-679-0841. And this article is titled, you should Google it, called Body of Jelani Day Found Without Organs and Teeth. It reads, Authorities are continuing to investigate the death of Jelani Day, whose body was pulled from the Illinois River last month and found without organs after the graduate student disappeared in late August, according to Chicago Sun-Times. Day's body was found without eyeballs and his top and bottom teeth. The autopsy also concluded that the jawbone had been sawed out. Now, what would be the motivation of this kind of hideous act? You talk about this old question, human rights, Brother Haki. What do you make of this particular phenomenon? It's very clear that um, Africans in this country are not being viewed as being Americans. Your response to this article, article Brother Haki. Well, you know, one of the things that's interesting, there's a um, a preeminence of uh, amount of, um, you know, African, particularly African women disappearing. Uh, Increasingly, over the last 10, 5, 10 years, there's been an increase in terms of actual, you know, black bodies that are mutilated. So in my mind, there is is something very odd going on, but I was surprised to find out that in, in America, the selling of body parts, even though it's not legally, it's not legal, it's still nonetheless sanctioned, you know, by uh, by corporations. Uh, I, I was amazed to find out that there was there were three major uh, companies that that trafficked in, in selling body parts. One was in the Phoenix, Arizona, called the Biological Resource Research Center. Another one was called the uh, Medicure out of Portland, Oregon. A third one was called the International Biological Inc out of Detroit, Michigan. And, in fact, uh, this, this, this Medicare, uh, interesting enough about this particular organization, it shipped body parts to over 45 countries throughout the world, and it started back in 2008. And this is according to a Reuters report. Also, with respect to the Biological Resource Center of Phoenix, Arizona, that's since been closed down, they're currently under investigation. But uh, there was a trial that was recently held, and uh, the owner, uh, Stephen Gore, received 12 months, which were suspended, and four months of probation. So even though, according to law, uh, trafficking body parts is illegal, the practice persists. And one of the things that's very, very ironic, that when we talk about, you know, uh, trafficking, you know, uh, of body parts, uh, there's a law that specifically says that body parts are not to be uh, transferred from country to country. Uh, except the only time that human specimens are being could be transferred to another country is either through a blood sample or a lab specimen. That's the only time you can tra- you can you can traffic in blood uh, specimens leaving one country to another. But despite this this law, uh, this, this, this 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 tendency or this leniency with respect to allowing these corporations to continue to ship body parts. All over the world, all over the world persists. So it got me to thinking that, in fact, that when you think about the fact that this young brother, you know, uh, a lot of his, his body parts were missing, particularly his 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 brain, his liver, his spleen. It got me to thinking because one of the things when you talk about, particularly the brain, and you talk about cutting through all that bone in terms of getting to the human brain, uh, whoever did this did this did this diabolical act apparently wasn't afraid of being caught. 
which raises the specter of a possibility of perhaps somebody professional individuals are responsible for actually removing that brain. Because it seems to me as a street person who tried to remove the brain, unless you got some powerful equipment in terms of cutting through that bone, uh, through the skull, in terms of accessing that brain, and then then severing it from the spine, uh, the reality is that uh, it's not likely that someone on the street would do this. No, also, in addition to that, when you think about in terms of these, these kind of operations, that you would think that uh, the possibility of getting caught are, are probably uh, monumental. And the mere fact that they've been able to remove these body parts speaks to the fact that they perhaps felt very comfortable in terms of removing these body parts without fear of being caught. So clearly when I think about these organizations that, that make profit, big profit, millions and millions of dollars, trafficking in body parts, it seems to me there's a real financial incentive in terms of engaging in terms of, you know, killing people for the purposes of profiting. And given the fact that America is, uh, is chief among all nations in terms of doing this, uh, given the propensity in America in terms of the elevate profit over human beings, I can certainly see a situation where people are, are randomly killed and 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 in harvest and in, in, in the body are harvested for, you know, for for, for certain uh, body parts for purposes of sale. So clearly, brother Africa, I'm, I'm sort of loop, I'm sort of do, I'm sort of uh, I'm very much concerned about the uh, the implications in terms of what happened to Jelani Day. In terms of uh, you know um, how does how does thing play itself out? So and I'll close with that. And not only that, brother Haki, you and other panelists can respond <laughs> to this as well. You know, there's a large number of missing African children. We saw hundreds of thousands that has been reported missing, and nobody know not, nothing about it. Now to have that sexualized number of people missing, and it has not became it has not become a state of emergency, it seems to me that you you couldn't operate with that number of people missing while some sense of having some kind of support for certain um, certain industries or or, 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 or legal institutions uh, facilitating uh, this, this particular type of act. I'm just wondering in terms of your response to why there's not no outcry of numbers of African children who are missing and no one knows what's happening. They just disappear, particularly given how well this country is surveillance, has a surveillance system all over this country where they can monitor you 24-7 from all over. I'm just wondering in terms of how can this take place and everybody don't know nothing. Yeah, well, you know, I, I agree about the Africa. I think that's a certain amount of complicity that's taking place. Clearly, you can't, I mean, you can't, I mean, millions of bodies disappearing yearly and nobody knows anything. And as you alluded to, you talk about a surveillance state. So you can set a fire in uh, California and they can, they can identify who you were, but you can't identify millions of people uh, uh, who, are, who, are, who are responsible for the deaths of millions and millions, um, millions, and millions of people. Uh, so clearly it's all very, very, uh, um, it's all very, very um, strange as far as I'm concerned. And like I alluded to before, one of the things, when you, when you start talking about the fact that according to the law, only blood and lead specimens are supposed to be shipped from country to country, the mere fact that corporations, despite the law, are able to ship body parts throughout the world and there is, there is no type of repercussion, it, it, raises, it raises a red flag. And keep in mind, if you send a letter from here to, say, Cuba or to Iran or to Russia or to China, the CIA, FBI gets a copy of that letter. Uh, you know, so so they, so the surveillance is that that intricate. So if you can do that in terms of surveilling a letter, letter, 
But you can't do that in terms of millions of people, children, particularly African children and women, missing every year, but yet you have no clue what's going on. So clearly, Brother Africa, I think there's a strong correlation between these, these organizations that deal in body, body part trafficking and the disappearances of millions of African women and children you, you, you know, in the United States uh, and throughout the world. So clearly, Brother Africa, I agree with you. There's a certain amount of complicity that's going on and which we, you know, we cannot deny. Thank you, Brother Haki. Brother Anthony, are we living in a time where they can call this invasion of the body snatcher? I think so. Uh, looking at the details that they gave that they gave in this article, uh, you know that uh, that his uh, that his body was found without organs, which is uh, very strange to me. And, um, you know, uh, a commentator in the article mentioned that this was like uh, Emmett Till. I tend to disagree. Uh, Emmett Till was subject to terrorism, but they were not necessarily interested in uh, in uh, stripping his body parts away. Uh, the technology for, for the store... Uh, you know, for the handling storage of that didn't exist at that time, I don't think. But uh, in the case of Jelani Day, it seems like uh, it seems like uh, you know something. Uh, it seems very strange and something suspicious uh, was afoot. Uh, you know, in terms of how uh, you know his uh, his organs were dismembered from his body. And, uh, you know, and that should raise a concern. And, uh, you know, and the thing about it, though, and I think the reason why this got attention is partly because of the way the media media paid attention to the Gabby Patino case in which, uh, you know, she disappeared. And uh, you know, a lot of Africans are wondering why why their case is not getting the same attention. And I think, and uh, you know, I think it's because of the racism that permeates this society, for one, and also the circumstances under which uh, Patino disappeared. And Jelani Day might have disappeared, or are, 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 are totally different. And uh, you know, because uh, it seemed as if, from what I read, uh, Bettina uh, was having uh, problems, uh, you know, relationship issues with her fiance, you know, who ter- who uh, who admitted in one of his note- notebooks that he killed her. And uh, this seems to be a, a, a different uh, a different circumstance, and uh, you know, and uh, and uh, unless uh, we organize to draw attention to it, uh, this could uh, continue to happen, unfortunately. And I feel for uh, for Day's family, you know, for what they're going through right now. Thank you, Anthony. Brother Moses, the only day, death, your response to it, Brother Moses. 
Yeah, this is no question. This is a crime. Uh, no question. Um, this is harvesting uh, organs, and uh, and we need the investigation. We we need somebody to get to the bottom of this. And uh, and you know, cause like you said, if it's if it's if it could continue, and uh, and uh, you know, we we're faced with so many problems, and uh, and we need the, the Black Lives to Matter, and that and that. Um, we need an investigation. It's simple as that. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Now, let's make a uh, transition to the next article, which somewhat deal with what we were just talking about, this whole question of the state having the ability to to survey or surveillance um, People throughout this whole country. There was an interest article, I think we think of interest, if you get a chance to Google in, that is titled, Police Are Slammed for Creating a Surveillance State by Using AI Software to Spy on Social Media and Identify Potential Criminal. Now, we just talking about uh, these cases of African disappearing, and nobody knew nothing. Here we're talking about the police department with official tools or software programs, sophisticated spy programs, to find out what people are doing. When you read this article, Brother Anthony, uh, what things came to your mind in terms of this question of surveillance, Brother Anthony? One uh, is a high level uh, that the police and military will go to to spy on uh, you know, uh, 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 on uh, U.S. citizenry, uh, you know, regardless of ethnic background. But, uh, you know, uh, art, uh, artificial intelligence software can be used in that way. And uh, it uh, is an ominous sign because uh, uh that means the that gives the police the power to scrutinize everything that people do uh and uh you and uh you know without your knowledge uh necessarily and that's why you know doing everything by computer can be somewhat dangerous uh because you know uh you don't know who or how many people are actually watching your activities. Uh, so it's a very ominous sign, uh, you know, in, in, inside the U.S. that, uh, that uh, you know, that, uh, you know, that the technology has become com- so complex that uh, you can't detect when you're, when you're being watched or not. Brother Haki? Yeah, well, I think, Brother Africa, to a large extent, this is to be expected. Uh, so when we talk about the emergence of the police state, one of the things we, we have to clearly understand, when we talk about in terms of the precarious nature of the U.S. economy, in terms of the, uh, the likelihood it's going to fall in a very short order, then you've got to understand that people in positions of power, want to, to the extent that they can, uh be in a position to determine any perceived threat that may exist out there. Of course, the, the, the perceived threat is not because they're really concerned in terms of in terms of 
you know, um, you be in a position to actually impact, you know, foreign, U.S. foreign policy. Their, their, their real concern is the fact that, you know, the, given the, the, the inequality that pervades, pervades the society, they're very much concerned in terms of the potential in terms of, you know, the, the, the evolution of revolutionaries, and they certainly want to know who they are. But there is an irony, because when you talk about in terms of people who, quote, unquote, are a threat to the society, uh, clearly uh, white nationalists, Nazis, and, and uh, these kind of these kind of militias, these kind of groups, are not seen as, as, a, as, as a threat to the state. But yet people of color, those who merely speak the truth, those who merely analyze, those who merely uh, articulate a, 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 different, uh, a different point of view, those individuals are find, defined as the enemies of the state. So all of this, you know, you, all this perusing the social media is all about, you know, the, being in a position to define who is who. And this is what it's all about. It has nothing to do in terms of, in terms of um, really, you know, uh, achieving this objective. Namely, when we talk about this, this whole, um, uh, this, 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 this program called Shadow Dragon, which supposedly uh, is supposed to be able to predict crime. Of course, the bottom line is that only a fool would believe that, in fact, that reading a post is going to, in fact, be in, 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 be, in, be indicative of proving, you know, when crime is about to occur. That is absurd. In fact, one of the reasons why the rappers, uh, Jay-Z in particular, are suing these corporations is because this notion of continually using rap music, you know, to, to, to somehow uh, infer that if you listen to rap music and you commit a crime, then rap music is in fact uh, instrumental in terms of you creating that crime. And so in that kind of, in that sense, they 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 they, they, they uh, uh, define all rap music as in fact you know uh, uh, a potential for a potential uh, uh, to, to have a criminal impact. So in that regard, all rappers become under scrutiny because you have a platform, a, a, a musical style, which is indicative of criminality. And so therefore, in their minds. Spying on such such individuals is justifiable, but clearly, brother, after it's, it's very very clear though. You know, given the decline of the economy, uh, it's inevitable that they would do this kind of thing, and this is part and parcel in terms of fascism. So, for people who don't believe fascism is already here, then take a look in terms of these innovations, all of these all the spy technology, uh, and the question is why? Because uh, the whole point is that you know it, you really don't just with the the the, the available spyware that exists can actually achieve what they want to achieve, namely it's a spy on the populace. You don't need additional spyware to do that, but they keep on innovating more and more of spyware with more and more complexity because the threat is because the threat is very, very real, you know, as the economy declines, the, the, the likelihood a very very real likelihood that people are going to stand up and resist is is is, is very, very clear. So they want to know everything conceivable about the population. And this is what this is all about. It has nothing to do in terms of, you know, uh, cr- to preventing crime, uh, predicting crime, it has nothing to do with that. It has nothing, nothing to do in terms of you know, making sure there's no threats to 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 you know to the uh, to to the U.S. government. It has nothing to do with that. It has more to do with essentially knowing who everybody are, what they are, how they think, so forth and so on. So in the advent that there is a situation in terms of people standing up, they have some inkling in terms of. Conceivably, who those people might be, and that's that's the whole motivation. So I don't think anybody should be surprised about the growing growing spy uh, technology, you know, in the society. You know, brother Hackey, you you made me uh, think of something in terms of um, about a couple of weeks ago, where um, 
the president was uh, the president of the United States. He made a statement in reference to uh, one of the greatest threats that this country is facing in the future is not only the essence of African people, but even more importantly, is the decline of Europeans becoming less than the majority of the people here. I found that statement really interesting in terms of how he viewed African people as a threat. So it seems this whole question of using technology to spy people is consistent in terms of the thoughts and the attitude of where this government and this society is going. Yeah, and that, that would explain why the focus is on people of color and not the right, right, right wing. They don't they don't survey them like they should, even though they're out there in the, in the forest just firing weapons and packing for war and all of that. But they're not a priority. The priority happens to be people of color. And to a large extent, you're right. There's this growing threat and this perception in terms of these people of color, you know, becoming a majority is a real concern to them. And of course, if they want and if they feel like if, if by 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 targeting that particular community, in terms of assessing who's who, they're in a more strategic position to be able to prevent any type of uprising taking place, any type of revolution taking place in the society. But, of course, anybody who understands the history of revolution knows a revolution is inevitable. You can't stop it, regardless of how many people they kill, how many people they incarcerate, how many people they intern. Revolution is inevitable, so they can't stop that. But given the hubris and arrogance that exists in the minds of these leaders in the West, particularly in the United States, the position is that somehow they can they can control history. And so they're convinced by using technology they're in a strategic position to, to, to counter or to prevent the rise of revolution in society. And so, therefore, they really think this technology is going to help them in their pursuit. Clearly, Brother Africa, you know, is, 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 you know it's, a, it's a game. It's a very vicious game. As Brother Anthony says, it's a very ominous game. Uh, but nonetheless, it's a game that they play. And we have to understand the nature of the beast in terms of the use of the technology, the specific reason why they use the technology, and what it means to our lives, you know, here in America. Brother Moses, the use of artificial intelligence by law, law enforcement. What's your take on that, Brother Moses? I agree with everything Haki has been saying. Uh, uh, I think it's, you know, it's counter-revolutionary, basically. Uh, it, that's the only objective is, is to be able to suppress any revolutionary change that might might be coming forth. And uh, I think that's the main objective, uh, uh, the rest of it is just propaganda and uh, window dressing. I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Okay. I don't know if he lost uh, Sister Eleanor, but let me check if he's still there. Okay. Sister Eleanor, can you hear me, please? Uh-huh. Your response, Sister Eleanor, are you there? I think you bad lost uh, our sister, so what we're going to do is we're going to continue discussion as we look at this issue of Blacks are not American. Another example of this would be the example of uh, would be the example of this article talk about a hundred black women to receive guaranteed income on a new Georgia program. Now, I talk about a new program designed to address the racial wealth gap, provided eight hundred fifty dollars per month to hundreds of black women in Georgia. What y'all make of this whole new thing about this guaranteed income? And do you think it's a concept that's going to be um, can be applied to uh, the majority of the people here, Brother Hackey? 
Well, you know, Brother Africa, I'm very skeptical of this this program. They're only going to give it to what 100 and what wow, 100 what 100 100 and 650 650 black women. Right. It, it doesn't make sense. If if you're going to have an overall impact on the economy generally, then clearly the more people you have as part of that program, the, the better the expansion in terms of the economic prospects, the better the economy becomes. So therefore, you want to include, you know, statewide as many poor people as possible in terms of that program, in terms of ensuring there's some benefit to the overall economy. When you talk about your six, 650 women, 650 African women, and you're talking about, what, $13 million, that's not going to do anything in terms of expansion the economy. Uh, it may be good for those individuals, but it's not going to tr- achieve its true objective in terms of expanding the economy. But the whole point in terms of putting, giving this money to these women is to get that money into broader circulation because they understand by giving the money to poor people, poor people tend to spend because they just simply don't have enough money uh, to save. And so what, they happens, what happens is that they spend. So there's no question in terms of they don't have this. There's no no question of disposable income. You only have income that you need right away. So that income gets spent right away. And the whole point is that money enters into the system, which causes expansion of the money supply. Uh, so that's the whole point reason behind it. But with 650 women, you can't achieve that. So the question becomes: So what is your real motivation in terms of giving 650 women, you know, that money, you know, uh, that money? You know, so we want to talk about 13 million dollars, 13 million dollars a year. So clearly, Brother Africa, I'm sort of suspicious in terms of this, in terms of the so-called pet pro- this pilot project, because to me it doesn't make any sense from an economic economic point of view. The only political uh, it, the only political attributes to this particular program, I think, has a lot to do with the fact that you can now stigmatize those poor women. You can now point them out as as uh, as 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 as, as, um, as the epitome of the problem in terms of lack of drive, or lack of Motivation that exists in society, and because the people, because the women lack drive and motivation, uh, then they're on a public dole, and which sort of reinforces the whole notion in terms of people being somehow uh, inadequate or people being, uh, you know, uh, unproductive. So I think in that context, I think it gives the the government this 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 motivation to. Not only paint these women as somehow you know less than efficient or less than productive, uh, but to promote this general stereotypic views that in fact that there's something fundamentally wrong with these women who cannot do for themselves. So I think I, I think that's I think that's the real motivation in terms of doing this. Because otherwise, just in terms of business, just in the, from business perspective, it makes no sense just to give just 650 women, you know, uh, you know uh, that that money, you know, which only constitutes 13 million, uh, 13 million a year. So clearly, brother, I'm I'm sort of um, dubious. I'm sort of skeptical about what the what the real motive is. This I think my, in my mind, the real motive has more to do in terms of reinforcing stereotypes as opposed to really helping the women in terms of you know uh, uh, poverty pervades society as a result of you know government policy. Uh, you know, so um, so I'm so I'm so dubious, brother Africa. But we'll wait and we'll we'll see what happens. I'm I'm agree I'm agreeing with you, brother Hockey, and also it's a continuation of creating the condition of dependency um, to me. So anyway, we can go with brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, talk to us. What you make of this so-called guaranteed <laughs> income and how it may be used as a tool, not necessarily in the best interest of our people. Uh, well, 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 for one thing, it's limited. And uh, and uh, as ha- ha- Brother Haki stated, 
is uh, it involves too few few people to have much of an impact over on the economic picture. And um, uh, let's see, uh, there are similar programs in California and uh, and in Mississippi, and uh, and these programs, uh, you know, I mean. Uh, on the surface, it may sound a, a, like a lot, but if you try to live on your own, you realize that even a thousand dollars a month isn't really much. Uh, you know, to meet uh, the needs of food, clothing, and shelter, and uh, those are ongoing needs. And uh, so, I think, uh, unfortunately, I think it has no more than a political symbolic value and uh, will not uh, benefit the people that much overall, except for, uh, you know, stigmatization of uh, that uh, Haki had mentioned. I mean, one thing when you talk about human rights, if people can have human rights, it would seem to me there would be some kind of guaranteed income for all people just to live in decency. But let's go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, talk to us. What's your take on this article? Brother Moses. Yeah, I think I'm agreeing with what's being said. I mean, basically, um, it's too, it's, it's, it's a little bit, and it's, and it's, it's a little, a few people, and um, its impact is, you know, in terms of the masses, it's, 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 it's not very much. And so, but uh, it's a symbolic gesture, I guess. I don't know what else to call it. Uh, um, and um, you know, somebody, politician is trying to trying to get a little uh, uh, momentum out of it, I guess. Or hopefully, they will think that they're going to get reelected, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, um, but in terms of the masses of the people, it's, it's not much. It's not much. But it is symbolic gesture, and I, I, I don't oppose it. Uh, I think, you know, black people need all the income they can get. With. That's wealth. It's what they don't want us to have. Uh, so I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. To our listening audience, you're listening to Africa on the Move. I'm Brother Africa, and what we try to do on a weekly basis, every Sunday from 7 p.m. Eastern Time, U.S., you can come and join us. Please pray the word that Africa on the Move is a weekly program under the banner of the African Awareness Association. We want to use information as a tool for liberation. This is one of the major objectives that we're seeking to do, and we can do a better job if we can get your participation. So come and join us, spread the word, and we welcome any views and comments that you may have on this program and others by emailing us at AfricaOnTheMove2 at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a friend, supporter of Africa on the Move, email us, let us know, and we will convey to you how you can do this. So right now we're going to a quick station break, and when we come back, we're going to have our closing thoughts, and we're going to have a little tribute from the AAPRPGC on our brother Clyde Bellacore, who just recently made a transition, and our love for him and indigenous nations. So we'll be right back, and remember, don't you go nowhere. 
Because if you do, you're going to be a square. This is Africa on the move. A negative attitude towards Africa. In San Francisco, on African Liberation Day, Brother Walter Rodney, an African historian, noted both the importance of African Liberation Day in terms of our African identity and some of the root causes for our problem of identification. I have met brothers and sisters who say that their mother tongue, quote-unquote, is French, Spanish, Dutch, Portuguese, as well as English, which we speak. And because of this, we have a problem of identification. We do not know whom we are. And that is why this gathering is of great symbolic importance, because it is an act of identification. We are saying that we identify with the African people of the African continent. We are saying that we are an African people. And when we make this identification, have no illusions about the fact that this is a very revolutionary initiative. It is a rejection of every other form of identification which the white society has asked us to accept. Let me draw your attention to something which white universities and white libraries practice. And this is a university community. Numerous universities lie around this land. Go into their libraries and check the Library of Congress cards on the Europe or European. You will find all entries listed concerning the continent of Europe. You will also find entries listed about Europeans in East Africa, Europeans in North Africa, Europeans in Asia and Australia. Look under the Chinese, you will find entries listed not only for mainland China, but for Malaysia and for the Chinese in, in, the, in North America. But look on the Africa and the Africans, the only entries on the Africans relate to the continent itself. There are no entries on the Africans overseas. There is no such category. Africans who have been raped from the continent mysteriously disappear and become Negroes. Michael, eles não ligam pra gente.
We'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Move. We're in our final stage of making that transition for the night, our closing. We'll bring back our political panelists, let them make their final thoughts. But before we do this, we'd like to thank everyone, our special guest, Camille Laundrie, Laundrie, as she spoke on the issue of human rights. Of course, we'd like to thank you, the listening audience, for allowing us to come to your home this evening where we can speak truth to the powerless and the powerful. We'd like to remind you again that um, this program can be listened to every Sunday evening from 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Yes. So join in and spread the word and help build this particular radio institution. So what we're going to do right now, we're going to make our closing thoughts for tonight. But before we do that, we would like to send our condolences as well to uh, the family of Clyde Bellacourt, who was one of the co-founders of America Indian Movement. And he set an excellent example of what it means to resist against oppression. And we will not forget his contributions that he has made to humanity towards having to be a better world for our people. We have with us Brother Anthony for the All African People Revolutionary Party G Sue who would like to read a statement on behalf of Clyde Bellico. We now will bring in Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, the mic is yours. Uh, thank you, Brother Africa. On behalf of the All African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, I will now read the following. You, we have felt the thunder, now the coming of the storm, in remembrance of Clyde Bellacourt, co-founder of the American Indian Movement Movement, uh, May 6, 1936 through January 11, 2022. Kwame Ture always said that when you make a mistake and don't correct it, you've made two mistakes. It is with this understanding we offer our humble apology for the lateness of our condolences for the honor of having known and been in solidarity with Clyde Bellacourt and the American Indian Movement. Aim. The All-African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, and our women's wing, the All-African Women's Revolutionary Union, GC, takes great pride in one of the most important lessons and demonstrative actions, that of the life of our brother Clyde Bellancourt taught, reinforced, and confirmed to his people nation and to all oppressed peoples summarized in a statement by the first president of ghana kwame Nkrumah, who instructed about the importance of the presentation of a people's history we borrow from Nkrumah's philosophy as detailed in his book consciousness philosophy and ideology for decolonization in saying in the new indigenous renaissance, we must place great emphasis on the presentation of history. The indigenous people's history needs to be written as the history of the indigenous society, not as the story of European adventures. Indigenous society must be treated 
as enjoying its own integrity, indigenous history must be a mirror of that society, and the European compact must find its place in this history only as an indigenous experience, even if as a crucial one. That is to say, the European contact needs to be assessed and judged from the point of view of the principles animating indigenous society and from the point of view of the humanity, of the harmony and progress of their society. Clyde Bellacourt advanced his legacy by helping to build an educational institution named Heart of the Earth Survival School, along with Center for Indian Youth and an Opportunities Industrialization Center, OIC, a job program for his people and nation in 1972, and in 1998 for the sole purpose of instilling this lesson and philosophy into the minds and hearts of its people, especially the youth, we know that a forgotten part of our history will create a people with a forgotten identity. We salute Clyde for this achievement in the fight against cultural imperialism and domination. Clyde epitomized boldness, tenacity, and bravery through his struggles against various forms of oppression from the 1972 March Trail of Broken Treaties, the 1973 Wounded Knee Occupation at Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, the Longest Walk Protest, five months long, in 1978, against police brutality in 1998, spurring his participation in the resistance to an underground oil pipeline at the Standing Rock Indian Reservation in 2016, which are acts of rebellion and resistance for the liberation of his nation, white earth nation, and all indigenous peoples, movements, and humanity. In this work, Clyde was a granite rock of resistance to be emulated and remembered forever. Clyde's Ogeechee Warrior spirit, like behavior, and the attitude served as an example of defiance and steadfastness against any forms of indignity and disrespect towards indigenous peoples' cultures. Clyde challenged the national and international racial attitudes that were displayed in American sports and worldwide, which appeared that in his mind left for no choice but to use the weapon of organization as a tool for change and to challenge this racist behavior. Clyde helped mobilize, develop, and coordinate activities in opposition to racism by creating an organization called the National Coalition of Racism in Sports and the Media, in 1998, Clyde left us the tool of organization and showed us how to use it, continuing this battle as part of his legacy. Finally, 
We know Clyde Bellacourt as the founder of the American Indian Movement, AIM, in 1968, a nationalist and internationalist, a freedom fighter for justice, an alliance maker and coalition builder, a U.S. bombing blockade buster, Libya, an ally and friend to Africa and African people, worldwide and to Palestine and the Palestinian people, to Ireland and the Irish people and all oppressed peoples. This is a relationship that we, through the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, Black Panther Party, all African People's Revolutionary Party, all African People's Revolutionary Party, GC, have nurtured and shared with our brother Clyde, AIM, and the indigenous people in the Western Hemisphere for over 54 years. The struggle continues. The AARPGC sends revolutionary condolences to Clyde's biological and ideological families, friends, and allies of his works and life's mission. The AAPRPGC does not mourn Clyde's transition to an ancestor, but his legacy inspires us to pick up his torch of independence, dignity, sovereignty, liberation, justice, peace, and freedom, and carry it to the finish line. On this day, we... Thursday, January 27th, 2022, we make our final salute to Nizal Way We Done, Clyde Bellancourt. We stand ready for the revolution. Thank you. After into our panelists, we now will ask each one of y'all to make our final thoughts for tonight. Starting with Brother Moses, your final thoughts. Thank you, thank you, Brother Africa. Um, We are faced with a struggle uh, to unite the many, to defeat the few, and the working class is the answer. Um, Martin is the ideology, the end all ideology. This is not a system, a closed set of ideas. Lenin pointed out that a concrete analysis of concrete conditions is the life and soul of Marxism. That's why it is an ideology to end all ideology. Reality is core, not an idea per se. Yet there is a body of works that prove to be correct, and co- correct verdicts should not be reversed. And hence, there is an ideology called Marxism-Leninism. We inherited, and we will defend and develop Marxism-Leninism as it applies to the specific situation here in the heart of the beast. Racism and bigotry of any sort has no place in the Marxist-Leninist party. The LGBTQ movement is our movement, E-R-A-S. And we have to look to examples of the Soviet Union, China, and Cuba as, as, as a few, as a concrete example of Marxism-Leninism at work. And I, as I said, Marxism is the race to cure all racism. And I thank you for allowing me to be on the show. Thank you, Brother Thank you, Brother Moses. Brother Hackey, your final thoughts. Yeah. Well, you know, recently, Brother, yeah, recently, Brother Africa, I read an article about a political scientist 
who advises the CIA on the likelihood of civil war in countries. And uh, she talks about the fact that the U.S. in fact, you know, close, the U.S. is closer to civil war than we anticipate. Now, essentially, there are three things that she elucidated, which is so important in terms of people understanding. Uh, when we talk about the inevitability of civil war in America, understanding this is not hyperbole, it's not an exaggeration. We're trying to tell you, listen, uh, this is what's going on. This is the very real impact of the things that are going on, and we got to pay attention to what's going on because, to a large extent, uh, our livelihood is our longevity in society is going to be determined upon how much, how well we understand what's going on in society and our response to it. Now, one of the things that she, she talked about, she talked about the pre insurgency, you know, in, in society as a prelude to uh, civil war. Uh, January 6th insurrection uh, was a pre insurgency. In fact, this is just a, a a sort of a, 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 um, uh, a, a sort of a predecessor to a much larger movement that's that take place that's going to take place in America. The mere fact they were able to pull it off uh, speaks volumes in terms of the, the potential to do it on a much grander scale. The mere fact that when the federal government decided to acquiesce by not ensuring, you know, that uh, the certainty wasn't successful, when they allowed that certainty on January 6th to be effective. They ensure there'll be future much larger, much grander uh, insurgency that's going to take place in America. So keep that. So keep in mind that when 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 the federal government, when the National Guard, along with the Capitol Police, intentionally allowed these insurrectionists to come to Washington D.C. to actually run amok, it was part of a strategy. So keep in mind this is all part, which this is all part of leading to what she calls the civil war in America. Secondly, the whole question in terms of the authority authoritarian tendencies that exist in society. America, of course, as we alluded to earlier in the show with the guest, uh, one of the things, the institutions are, are all geared toward authoritarian uh, uh, tendencies. Uh, but in particular, when we talk about, in this particular article, when she talked about authoritarian tendencies, she talked about you know the, the increasing list of enemies. In particular, earlier when I talked about Russia, China, Iran, Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua being enemies of the U.S., uh, this list tends to grow continuously. But ironically, one of the things is when we talk about Russia, for instance, or China, when they're talking about imposing, imposing a blockade on, on those countries, they're not, they can't be effective because right now those countries actually control their own economic destiny. So nothing the U.S. can do uh, that's going to limit them in terms of their ability to conduct you know, economic affairs you know, between each other as well as throughout the world. Also, when they talk about, in fact, um, when they talk about kicking the Russian and the China from the SWIFT uh, banking system, it really doesn't matter because Russia and China have already decided that they're going to trade in their own currencies, uh, which means that uh, the business activity won't be uh, deterred in any iota. So, which means that uh, the ability of the United States to affect change in those countries is something that doesn't exist. So, to, 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 to the same extent, you can also reason when you talk about Iran, Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua. Uh, despite the blockade, despite the kind of um, uh, um, embargo, despite the kind of things, political pressure they bring to bear against those societies, they have been doing a very good job in terms of you know dealing with those 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 uh, those those changes uh, to their economy in a way in which allows them to continue to move forward despite the best efforts of the United States. Uh, also, when she talked about this whole question in terms of the prevention of civil war in American society. This question in terms of um, you know you know voter suppression. Uh, one of the things 
voter suppression is, is a clear indication, you know, that there's something wrong in society anytime you deny your population the ability to vote. Superimposed upon a lack, the superimposed upon the uh, vote, uh, in decreasing the voters' ability to vote is a whole gerrymandering districts. So the whole idea in terms of gerrymandering districts, 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 is the whole idea behind it is to make sure that the most conservative of the most conservative become positions of power. So behind the scene, only most conservative politicians get supported financially, you know, by the wealthy and by corporations which ensures that eventually well, who comes to power with the most conservative, the most pro-authoritarian individuals, you know, on the planet, which ensures that, that uh, all, you know, that, uh, that, this, that when we talk about the propensity of civil war becoming a reality, these individuals that, uh, that are being groomed to come to positions of power will ensure that a civil war, in fact, does happen in America. And this is what we have to understand. And, and also, this whole question in terms of access to information, uh, one of the things we hear a lot about in you know, the critical race theory, we hear a lot about U.S. history uh, being denied in these in these high schools. Well, that's part of a strategy. In other words, one of the things they want to do is to make sure that the American public remains dumbed down. In order to effectively control the masses of people, to make them uh, more amenable to, to propaganda, you deny them information. By denying them information, you can force-feed them, force them through propaganda whatever ideas you want to instill in their minds. And so in doing that, it makes it easy to legitimize civil war because you have an increasing number of people who don't understand that the system in place which is di- directly responsible for the, for, the, for the trials and tribulations they endure day in, day out, and who are more apt to believe that the problem they face is a result of other people. So clearly, Brother Africa, uh, this, is, this, is, this is very problematic. And lastly, thirdly, she talked about the political visions that exist in America. Now, in America, according to recent polls, 46 million uh, 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 on the right support authoritarian policy. Authoritarian policy meaning uh, those policies that even though they may they may hurt the, those on the right, but as long as the perception is that it hurt the, the people of color more, then they're willing to endure those policies. Of that 46 million people, 21 million support war against the U.S. government. That is that is saying that 20 million is a lot of people, uh, you know, and we're talking about very organized people, and they're and they're real, real financed, not just by corporations, by wealthy individuals too, not just wealthy individuals in America, but wealthy right wing wingers throughout the world who see uh, uh, the who see um, you know, propping up prop, uh, imperialism is that economic self interest, and so therefore they want to see a civil war in America because they in, in their possession in their, in their estimation. By having civil war in America ensures continuation of profits, uh, but which is true, but only to a certain extent. At some point, those profits become non-existence because the government has used ex- ex- enormous amount of expenditures just to finance, you know, the fighting of civil war, you know, right here in America. Now, when we talk about this whole question of transparency division, we can't exclude the role of, of media that the role that media plays in terms of facilitating, you know, uh, uh, propaganda. So in America, when we talk about Fox Media, when we talk about Fox News, and we talk about the OAN network or the One America Nation network, these networks are funded by you know most about the most far right wing capitalists on the planet, and so therefore their 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 thing is not about dissemination of news. Their thing clearly is about that which can manipulate and and and, and propagate uh, the masses of people, particularly those people on the right. And so they have no concern about what's true or what's honest or what is balanced. 
Their concern is making sure that this right-wing ideology becomes the law of the land. And, uh, of course, as we, as we look at the numbers in terms of reviewership, in terms of Fox News and One American Nation, they clearly the propaganda is very, very effective on the right. So clearly we got to understand this is the nature of the threat, and, and I certainly hope people understand that this is not an exaggeration. It's not something safe for effect. This is very real stuff, and we have to understand the nature of the beast. And I say that, brother, Africa has always encouraged people to unravel the matrix uh, because, you know, listen, if we don't understand clearly what's going on, then it would be uh, unrealistic to expect that we're in a position to actually cultivate a strategy uh, or ideas which is going to help us to uh, to to, uh, to to resist against you know overwhelming um, um, uh, um, institutions of force uh, which, which are highly organized. So we need to think clearly about what's going on. We need organizations, we need institutions to, to, to educate people in terms of what's going on, our response to it, and how we should respond to it. Because if we don't have those things in place, then the bottom line is that the situation becomes very, very perilous for, for, for people, particularly African people in the society. And I've said that, Brother Africa, you have a good night. Good night, Brother Haki and Brother Afni. Your final thoughts. My final thoughts uh, for tonight is um, is we must get better organized as a people, and we must unify. We must study our history in order to understand our similarities as well as our differences, and we and we must unite based upon our similarities. Uh, for more information about our objective, Pan-Africanism, please visit our website, www.a-aprp-gc.org. There you can find out more information about our party and our, our history and our ideology in Krumism Tourism and as well as how to join and support our work. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Edmund, for your contribution to today's program. And to our listening audience, again, thank you for allowing us to tune in to your home where we can speak truth to the powerless and the powerful. We say to you, if you love your people, then the best way you can express this by joining an organization that is fighting for the liberation of your people. The only way you can think clearly is to be organized. So Africans, brothers and sisters, people who love humanity, if you want a better humanity, the best and the only way you can do that is organize yourself to, to do so. So until next time, join us next week, 7 p.m., spread the word. And just remember, Africa is on the move. We thank you for listening. For more than 30 years, the Piscataway Indian Nation singers and dancers have been touring the world in an attempt to break stereotypes and educate others about the history of their people. Their leader and narrator, Mark Tyak, is the son of a 28th generation Piscataway chieftain. When his father passes, it will be his turn to lead his tribe.
During a ceremonial war dance, James Edwards displays the American Indian virtue of mercy by not striking his target. Steve Conway demonstrated what is called a men's grass dance. These were often used by American Indians to flatten grassy plains before making camp. Here Eagle Boy Co. leads sophomore elementary education and engineering major Melissa Zichkowski in a rabbit dance, traditionally done by couples. Conley took the stage yet again to demonstrate a ring dance, an age-old tradition of forming shapes with rings, things like eagles, turtles, and the world. Co. performed an eagle dance, while Tayek explained the origin of the term Indian as it is used to describe Native Americans. The term came from Columbus, who, after being taken in by natives, affectionately dubbed them Indios, Spanish for in God.
Niggas come in for murder and change into pimping clothes. Then the streets to make some quick change. Niggas change their hair from black to red to blonde. And hope black hair and looks will change. Niggas kill other niggas just because one didn't receive the correct change. Niggas change from men to women, from women to men. Niggas change, change, change. You hear niggas say things are changing, things are changing. Black nigga things that go through all kinds of changes. The change in the day that makes you rat and rave. Black power, black power, and the change that comes over them at night as they sigh and moan. I die. Ooh, I die. Niggas always going through bullshit change. But when it comes for real change, niggas are scared of revolution. Niggas are actors. Niggas are actors, niggas act like they're in a hurry to catch the first act of the great white host. Niggas start to act like Malcolm, and when a white man doesn't react to them like he did Malcolm, niggas wanna act violently. Niggas act so cool and slick, causing white people to say, what makes you niggas act like that? Niggas act like you ain't never seen nobody act before. But when it comes to acting out revolution, niggas say, I can't dig them actions. Niggas are scared of revolution. Niggas are very together people. Niggas talk about getting high and riding around in hell. Niggas to get high and ride to hell. Niggas talk about pimping, pimping that, pimping what? Pimping yours, pimping mine. Just to be pimping is a hell of a line. Niggas are very together people. Niggas talk about your mind, talk about my mind stronger than yours. I got that bitch's mind uptight. Niggas don't know a damn thing about the mind. But they be right. Niggas are scared of revolution. Niggas fuck. Niggas fuck, fuck, fuck. Niggas love the word fuck. They think they're so fucking cute. They fuck you around. The first thing they say when they're mad is fuck it. You play a little too much for them. They say fuck you when it's time to TCB. Niggas are somewhere fucking. Try to be nice to them. They fuck over you. Niggas don't realize all they're doing all this fucking. They're getting fucked around. But when they do realize, it's too late. So niggas just get fucked up. Niggas talk about fucking. Fucking that. Fucking this. Fucking yours, fucking monsters, not knowing what they're fucking for, ain't fucking for love and appreciation, just fucking to be fucking, niggas fuck white side, black side, yellow side, brown side, niggas fuck angles when they want dollar side, niggas fuck Charlie, Linda, and two, and if you don't want out, niggas will fuck you, niggas will fuck fuck if it could be fucked, but when it comes to fucking for revolutionary causes, niggas say fuck revolution, niggas are scared of revolution. Niggas are players, niggas are players, are players, niggas play football, baseball, and basketball, while the white man is cutting off their balls. When a niggas play ain't tight enough to play with some black guys, niggas play with white guys to see if they still have some play left. And when they know white guys to play with, niggas play with themselves. Niggas tell you they're ready to be liberated, but when you say, let's go take our liberation, niggas reply, I was just playing. Niggas are playing with revolution and losing. Niggas are scared of revolution. Niggas do a lot of shooting. Niggas do a lot of shooting. Niggas shoot off at the mouth. Niggas shoot blue. Niggas shoot traps. Niggas cut around the corners and shoot down the streets. Niggas shoot sharp branches at white women. Niggas shoot dope into the arm. Niggas shoot guns and rifles on New Year's Eve. A new year is status coming in. But white police would do more shooting at them. Where are niggas when the revolution needs some shots? Yeah, you know, niggas are somewhere shooting this shit. Niggas are scared of revolution. Niggas are lovers. 
You can take niggas out of the country, but you can't take the country out of niggas. Niggas are lovers, are lovers, are lovers. Niggas love dear Malcolm Rap, but they didn't love Malcolm. Niggas love everything but themselves. But I'm a lover too. Yep, I'm a lover too. I love niggas, I love niggas, I love niggas. Because niggas are me, and I should only love that which is me. I love to see niggas. Go through changes, love to see niggas act, love to see niggas make them plays and shoot this shit. But there's one thing about niggas I do not love. Niggas are scared of revolution.